If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, today Rado talks through podcast number three. Uh, numero dry, uh, numero trace. Yes, that's right. And that's the extent of my foreign language. Number three in English, German, and Spanish. Toi! No, is that right? Yes, and Jen just said that was correct for French. Yes, okay. All right, um, enough of that international gallivanting. Let's start talking about board games. Although this is going to be a very special episode of Rado Talks Through because I will not be following the regular format. Not that I've been doing this long enough to really have a regular format, but whatever regularity I did have, I am throwing out the window because this episode is going to be 100% all about Gen Con 2015. It is Monday the 27th when I'm recording this. I believe Gen Con is starting Thursday of this week. Is that right? Thursday the 30th? I think so. And so what I have done is I have spent the better part of a day going through Eric Martin's excellent Gen Con 2015 preview geek list on BoardGameGeek. It's easy to find. Just go to BoardGameGeek.com and right up in the very, very top right corner of the front page is a link to the Gen Con preview. So there were tons of entries in there. I don't know how many. Actually, how many entries are there in this thing? 406 games that Eric has spent who knows how many hours selflessly, dutifully cataloging and commenting on so folks who are going to Gen Con would be able to make the uh, trip a little bit more fruitful. And I'm going to try to build on the back of that. I'm going to stand on the shoulder of a giant and add my own little two cents. I am going to give you now two lists that I have made. One is a list of games that I would be very, very interested or likely to buy if I found myself in Indianapolis later this week. And I have 46 games on that list that range from, well, I'm interested, but I need to know more, all the way up to must buy. And I'm going to be counting those down for you now. And after I'm done with that, I'm going to do another list of, how many is it? an additional 31 games that you can play at Gen Con, but which you cannot actually purchase. These are things that are on Kickstarter or, you know, basically previews of games that are going to come out later in the year at Essen and whatnot. And I will count that down from the ones I would most, I, I would, I'd, Maybe I'll make the time to play it. Maybe I'll just try and walk by and see what it looks like all the way up to the I will beat down anybody's door to make sure I can sit at a table and play it before I leave Indiana. So that's going to be the entirety of this talk through the day. No, what have we been playing lately? No questions and answers. Although, as always, if you have more questions, you can send them to questions at rotto.com. And uh, next month, I'll catch up. But this month, it's all Gen Con all the time. So, folks, are you ready to go? Well, get comfortable. I'll be right back.
Okay, are you sitting down? Are you comfortable? Do you have plenty of fluids for hydration? Good. I certainly do because I'm still sick as a dog, but I'm going to try and muscle my way through this as best I can. Jen, who is also sick, she has caught what ails me, is off to the side, and she's going to try really hard not to explode into violent fits of coughing, as am I, as we just muscle our way through this. Although, if either Jen or I break, my apologies ahead of time. Um, if I've got the wherewithal, I'll try to edit that sort of stuff out. There's a lot of phlegm uh, in our flat is what I'm trying to tell you right now, folks. Jen would rather I not show that information. Also, it's really weird. For the last couple of days, I've been dizzy. As I literally, as I just walk around, it's like I've just spun around and very strange. But, um, gotta get this done. Gen Con, she's a coming. She will not wait for us to get better. So, one more thing though, before I get going on the games that I would be interested in picking up if I were there. You gotta bear in mind, for folks who maybe ha aren't really that familiar with Rotto Runs Through and the type of show I do, I tend to focus exclusively on games that play well with just two players. You know, it's great if they play with more, but I don't really care because it's just me and my wife who play games. And which really kind of downplay any kind of nasty, aggressive interaction between players. So you gotta bear in mind, Listening to my particular list, you're going to be missing out on a bunch of potentially really, really awesome games that I'm not going to talk about. Heck, some of these games I've actually done run-through for, like Dead Drop and Grog Island and Warband and Pocket Imperium and Vault Wars and Discoveries and Post-Human. But, you know, there's other ones, too. Or Hostage Negotiator, a great little solo game. Uh, you know, but there's other games like Dark Moon and Between Two Cities, Letter Tycoon, games that I know are going to be great that are at the show. But, in our opinion, generally aren't really all that great with two. So, bear that in mind. There's going to be quite a few blind spots on this list because of my particular bias. And with that out of the way, I think I have stalled long enough. Let's get going with the countdown of games that I would be interested in purchasing. And at, at the beginning of this list, these are going to be games where like, hmm, I don't know. And maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm marginally intrigued, but I'll definitely have to find out more at the show. But about halfway through this list of, what is it, 45? 45 or 46. I uh, can never really tell with Excel because I don't know if I have a header. But anyway, um, about halfway through this list, I'll switch over from the, I'm thinking about it, into the, yeah, this is definitely a must-have. And I'll let you know when that shift happens. But right now, we're at the lower end, starting with the first game on the list from Z-Man Games, Apocalypse Chaos. And why is this at the bottom of the list? Well, because I know almost nothing about it. And it really kind of drives me nuts. I don't know what Z-Man is up to. You know, they, they're ready with the game. They're definitely going to be selling it at the show. So you'd think they would... Put, post rules for the game somewhere so you know what it's about. All I know about it is it's a cooperative science fiction fight aliens type game. I mean, here's all we know. Three bullet points. It's an action-packed cooperative experience for you and your friends to conquer. Well, you know what? I figured it was for me and my friends to conquer if it was cooperative. Got that. Modular components allow players to craft their own missions. Okay, that's interesting, but it, I don't know what that means. And includes a campaign of scenarios to test your courage and inspire your creativity. Okay, so those sound nice. But that's literally all I know. I was actually really excited. Uh, a couple days ago, Z-Man actually posted a teaser video for the game. And I'm great. Okay, they're going to show a bunch of stuff. But all they do is like show for like two seconds what the board actually looks like. And the rest of it's just some cosplay alien stuff. And it's like, ah! So 
I don't know. It could be an awesome game. I'm definitely intrigued. We definitely like science fiction. We like cooperative stuff. So maybe it'll be great, maybe not, but definitely we'll have to find out more at the show for Apocalypse Chaos. All right, moving on to the next one. Uh, this one again, is really low on the list because there's just not much information about it. It's called Ryu from Munster Games, and you'll actually be able to find it at the Asmodee booth. By the way, I should, uh, just in case people are taking notes, uh, that last one, Apocalypse Chaos from Z-Man. Z-Man is booth 2009. I'll list that while I'm going, just in case that's of use to anybody. All right, so the next one, Ryu, R-Y-U from Munster Games, although it's at uh, Asmodee's booth 1517, is a game that, well, right off the bat, one thing I can definitely say is it looks like it has absolutely gorgeous art. Uh, it's, it's a French-developed game, and I think it's kind of semi-cooperative. Everybody in this game is another science fiction-y type thing. Everybody is trying to build their own big mother dragon ship, and we're all in a race to be the first to build our super ship. And to do that, we have to harvest resources that we convert into the portions of the ship we're trying to build. But the interesting thing about it is, each one of us has different islands on this science fiction planet that we're on that we're trying to leave for whatever reason. And if I go to your island, I can search for resources. But I have to split the resources I find with you in kind of this little cube draft where, you know, I find some resources, I grab some, you grab some, and then I grab the rest. And um, and then later on, in a turn, you might come to my island and end up splitting the resources you find with me. Because we cannot find resources on our own islands. We have to go searching on each other's islands to find anything. And as well, there are some neutral islands, I guess, where we can do some special stuff. And that's pretty much all I know. And I got that from an interview with one of the developers, Eric Martin, did last year at Essen. So I think that's a really cool idea. I don't understand why Munster Games hasn't published the rules so we could actually learn more about the game. It just, it's just, why won't you give me the information so I can get really excited about this game? I, you know, particularly because the thing that worries me about it is, while that core gameplay system sounds very neat, I wonder how well it'll work for two. I wonder if it's going to be one of those games that you really need to have three or four players so that, you know, it's mixing it up a lot. And sometimes I go to your island, sometimes I go to Bob's island, who knows? But, I think the core concept is pretty neat. And again, from what little art they've shown, the art just looks absolutely stunning. So that's probably one of the things. Uh, so it would definitely be something I'd probably want to go out and find out a little bit more since the developers just seem bound and determined to keep it a secret until the day you can buy it at Gen Con. So moving on. Next up, this is a weird one for me. In fact, this one's totally cheating. This is going to be the only thing I mention on this list that actually requires three players. It is a three-player game or more, three or more at heart, because it is Catan Traveler Edition. The Settlers of Catan. And I got to say, in large part, I'm really intrigued by this because it's a little plastic all-in-one board slash um, carrying case where there's little slide-out doors that you keep all your pegs in because you use pegs so that you can play this anywhere under any circumstances. You can kind of save your game. It's got little drawers where you keep your Dyson, um, you know, little drawers where you keep all the cards, and it just looks adorable. It looks so cute. And well, I don't know if I should pick it up because we re almost never, ever, ever, ever have an opportunity to play it. 
every once in a great, great while, we do have more than two people to play with. And of course, Settlers Catan is very good with more. And it's interesting, it mentions that this version of Catan comes with a special two-player variant rule set. So you could actually play it as a two-player, where the way it works is apparently players can force trades on each other, kind of like maybe what Mundus Novus has. I'm not really sure. So I'm intrigued by that. Have um, they actually, after all these years, come up with a good official two-player variant for Catan? Who knows? But if you look, if you were to look at a picture of this thing, it just looks adorable. Um, anyway, and so that's Catan Traveler Edition from Mayfair Games in booth 116. Alrighty, next up, Meteor from Mayday Games at booth 143. This is a cooperative game that on average takes less than five minutes from start to finish. It is a very, very high pressure, high stakes game where players are scientists trying to build rockets that they are trying to launch as fast as possible because there is a meteor shower heading straight for Earth that is going to wipe out everybody. And so players are working together. Everybody has a hand of cards that represent resources and, you know, you can play them to your own launch pad to build your own rockets or other things like satellite networks and, and various and sundry elements that will help you. Or you can see what your opponent is doing and play your resources to their launch pad if you think you've got what they need. But the tricky thing is, until you actually build the communication satellite, players can't talk. Um, so to each other. And even once you do, you don't have that much time because the whole game is, um, starts and ends in five minutes. So there's a lot of players having to kind of fill in the blanks for each other and really pay attention to what everybody else is doing. It looks very, very cool. And I'm really intrigued by it. I do worry again that maybe it's going to be a game that's going to be better suited with more than two so that you have more people frantically all around the table. You have more people who you can try to help with the cards that are in your hand as opposed to only one other player. Well, maybe it's just going to be a little bit more limited. Actually, I do already have a copy of it, but we've yet to play it. And I definitely need to play it. I'm sorry I haven't played it before, but I really like the idea of it. And I should say, by the way, a lot of the games I'm about to mention, I've already done run-throughs for. In some cases, I even actually own the game. But when I was making this list, I was approaching it from the point of view of trying to do it as if I didn't have any of these games. And would I be interested in buying these games? Because I figured that'd be most useful. So I didn't want to cop out and say, well, I've already played this game, so I just won't even bother with the run-through. I'm actually trying to list all these things based on what my excitement level would be if I hadn't already played the games in prototype form and all that. So... That's just something to bear in mind as we continue. But anyway, that was Meteor from Mayday Games, booth 143. Next up, Champions of Midgard from Gray Fox Games. And you know what? Honestly, the only reason that this one is on the list is because Tom Vassell has been raving about it for months. He is cuckoo for Champions of Midgard. He absolutely loves this game. So much so, he got a Dice Tower seal of approval put on the actual box because he got to play the prototype months ago and loved it so much he wanted to, you know, proudly proclaim to the world. Anybody who even looks at it knows how much Tom Vassell loves this thing. So, I mean, I gotta give it, you know, a, a, a bit of interest just because of that. And there's nothing certainly wrong with the game. It, it looks like a fairly straightforward worker placement game where each player runs their own tribe of Vikings who are trying to fight off nasty, scary, mythological creatures. 
And so uh, you spend a lot of time doing worker placement, gathering the resources you need to be able to sail across the sea and fight these monsters. And the resources you need, for the most part, are warriors and wizards and stuff like that. And the diff- so the different warriors you're trying to recruit are dice. And so what you're trying to do is you're doing worker placement, not necessarily to gather cubes and convert them resources into other things like a normal work placement. You're gathering dice. And once you have the right dice that you've gathered, you travel and you go fight the monsters and you roll the dice to see if you beat them or not. And of course, you have ways to mitigate the luck of the dice roll and all that. And you know, it all looks very solid. It looks very clean. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's very good. I, I've yet to see why it's absolutely amazing, like one of Tom Vassell's top ten of the year, or certainly the way he goes on about it. I wouldn't be surprised if it works out that way for him, but it looks nice. And so I'd be curious to try it out, to see what it is that I haven't quite seen yet. Because to me, uh, at first glance, it kind of looks like, well, it looks like a nice worker placement game. Nothing really spectacular or amazing, but nice. Actually, it's interesting. Tom likens it to Lords of Waterdeep. Now, Lords of Waterdeep, to me, was a very, very brilliantly designed worker placement game that did several things that were very, very important that really kind of turned worker placement on its head. Uh, you know, with the, with, you know, the intrigue cards and the way they worked and the way you actually get two separate placements of your workers and, you know, two phases of it and the way a lot of what in most games would be nasty attack cards in Lords of Waterdeep become communal cards where I get something and then I have to pick somebody else at the table to get something. All those things were absolutely brilliant and a breath of fresh air. But I don't really quite see that in Champions of Midgard. It looks like a much more straightforward thing, kind of like a Stone Age. Nothing wrong with that, but I look forward to finding out more about Champions of Midgard from Gray Fox Games at booth 1803. Okay, next up. (laughs) I don't know why I keep doing this. This is my second one I'm going to mention that requires, effectively, three players. Star Trek Five-Year Mission from Mayfair Games at booth 116. And this is a cooperative dice rolling game where you or players can be members of the original crew of the Star Trek Enterprise or Next Generation. And in fact, you know, players can mix and match. So I could be playing Spock and Jen could be playing Geordi LaForge or something like that. And I, I, right off the bat, that's very attractive to me as a lifelong diehard Trek fan. So I love that. And then the core game is cooperative because every round we're rolling dice and re-rolling dice and doing that sort of thing to um, overcome shared obstacles that threaten to destroy the ship. So that's all very cool. I'm intrigued by the theme. I'm intrigued by the cooperative. I'm intrigued by the player's ability to mix and match crews. All that stuff sounds great. Only problem is it requires a minimum of three players. And that's a real bummer. But if I were at Gen Con, I would probably... only This would rate super high for me if it was a two-player compatible game. But it's not. So it's very, very low on the list. But if I were there, I would probably seek it out and try to play a round or two of it to see if maybe it would work as a two-player game anyway. Maybe it would, because it's cooperative, right? I mean, cooperative games you can play completely by yourself if you want. So I don't really want, I, I don't understand. A cooperative game that requires at least three players makes no sense to me almost. So I'm definitely interested in finding out more about Star Trek Five-Year Mission from Mayfair Games at Booth 116. Okay, continuing on. Flick'em Up from Pretzel Games 
which is in booth 2009, which, by the way, you may notice is the Z-Man booth. Pretzel Games is kind of an offshoot label of Z-Man Games. And, and Flick'em Up is their first game. Now, there's already a bunch of videos out there, so you can get a better idea of what this game is all about from those rather than listening to me talk about it. But in a nutshell, this is a Old West, you know, Old American West flicking game where players have cowboys that are laid out on the table and there's obstacles like cactuses and buildings and 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 various things and we are basically maneuvering our cowboys around flicking discs to maneuver and also flicking discs to shoot our six shooters at each other and it's kind of a last man standing thing although apparently the game comes with a bunch of different scenarios you can play they give you different goals and whatnot and apparently uh, this uh, got a very, very limited release at Origin. Some people picked it up there, and people are raving about it. I mean, just they can't stop going on about how wonderful it is. I've watched the videos. I think it looks kind of cute and fun. I don't think it replaces Catacombs, which, for my money, is the go-to flicking adventure game, because that's a game that has a lot of depth and, and stuff, whereas a Flick 'em Up just looks like the most of the depth comes from, look at all these different scenarios you can do and, and like the little gadgets you can, you know, put on the board, like, you know, being able to try to flick through a doorway to go from outside a building inside a building, you know, and that takes, you know, really clever aim to be able to go through that, you know, that door to get into the saloon and protect yourself from the, the banditos who are running around the street. I mean, it all looks very, very cute. It could be very, very nice. And I'm mostly mentioning it because everybody who's played it has just raved about it. So I would definitely like to try it. And then potentially maybe buy it at Gen Con. All right, so that was Flick 'em Up from Pretzel Games, i.e., Z Man Games at Booth 2009. Next up, Medieval Academy from Blue Cocker Games. Um, although they're they're actually in Iello's booth or Yellow's booth, which is 439. Medieval Academy is actually came out at Essen last year, and I was seriously considering picking it up then, um, because it's a card drafting game, you know, like a Seven Wonders or a Notre Dame, where, you know, players all have a handful of cards, they pick the one they like, they hand the rest off to the next, and, you know, you need to pick a card that's perfect for what you need to achieve right now, but you also need to pick a card that would be perfect for your opponent, because you don't want them to have it, so it has that whole card drafting thing, which always works very, very nicely, Jen, I definitely enjoy and the crux of it is, at any given time, that you are competing for basically kind of majorities on several different medieval characters. The princess, and the knight, and the king, and whatnot, and the, and the wizard. And they all pay out in different ways um, when you eventually get to a scoring round, uh, depending on, you know, the, if, uh, you know, whoever does best at this doesn't lose any points. Whoever does worse at this guy um, gains a lot of points. Whoever crosses this particular line gets points no matter what. So every time you play, depending on which characters are in play, you have a lot of different variable goals. It looks very, very cool. And then the card drafting looks very cool too. And the art looks absolutely fantastic. And the reason I didn't pick it up at Essen last year is because I eventually read the rules and I was a bit taken aback by how the two-player variants are set up. There's two different ways you can play it as a two-player. One where there's just a dummy player who randomly, you know, so there's, it's a three-player game and there's, so a dummy player just picks cards completely randomly. 
um, I think, or no, always picks the highest value card. So effectively kind of semi-randomly. And I thought, well, okay, maybe that'll work, maybe not. And then they have an advanced one where each player basically has to play as two different characters, which is something I always hate. I, 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 I can't think of a game where we've actually found that to be an acceptable two-player compromise. So I backed away from it. But um, again, once again, Tom Vassell has raved about this. He did pick it up at Essen and has just gone on and on and on about how awesome it is. Of course, I doubt he's ever played it as a two-player game because he always has other people to play with. So I'm still on the fence about it. It looks gorgeous. It has beautiful art. And, you know, it's it's got nothing but praise. But I have not read anybody talking about how it is as a two-player game. So this would definitely be another one that if I got a chance, I'd probably want to try to see if it's worth buying. And that is Medieval Academy at the Yellow booth 439. Okay, next up, One Deck Dungeon. And this one, I don't know anything about other than just the high-level concept of what it is. It is a very, very fast-playing deck of cards, one deck of cards, that gives you a sort of roguelike experience, and which is, oh, if you don't know what rogue is or what net hack is, basically, they're a billion years ago, in the video game arena, there were a series of games, and they still make them to this day, called roguelike games. Because the first one they ever came out, I think, was called Rogue. And they are very simple dungeon crawls, where it's all about just you know running through this randomly generated dungeon, randomly generated bad guys with randomly generated loot, and just seeing how deep you can get in the dungeon, and how much stuff you can get before the dungeon destroys you. And you, know, you don't get out alive. That's just, you know, it's just you try to play obsessively. You play a game really quick, you play it again, you just try and get deeper and deeper and deeper. And One Deck Dungeon is trying to capture that in analog form with a single deck of cards that players use where the cards represent both the obstacles you face and the rewards you get. And that's all I know. I like the idea of that. It sounds very nice. I also like that... Well, the thing I don't know about is there's no description of how combat works. And if combat is just, hey, come into a room, roll a die, see what happens, I don't think that'll be very interesting. But I hope that combat actually has some, you know, something that really pushes your gray matter. You know, and if so, it might be something that's worth checking out from Asmati Games, booth... Or not booth, I think they're in room, 549, One Deck Dungeon. And this is interesting too. You can buy it there, but you're buying a beta. Uh, you know, so they, they won't have very many copies of it. It's, it's just like kind of like a, a very, very early pre-release that's at the show. So I'd definitely be curious in checking it out, but I, you know, I don't know because we're still very, very low on the list. That was one deck dungeon. All right. Let's see. Oh, I just noticed numbers. Okay. Yeah. It was number 37. Now on to number 36. Extra Extra from Mayfair Games, again, at booth 116. Mayfair Games, Extra Extra. I love the theme of this. This is a game where players are trying to marshal their troop of reporters to put out the best newspaper they can. And everybody's competing to try to cover all the news stories of the day uh, you know, and beat everybody else to, to get the scoop doing worker placement to hire reporters to, you know, um, do research to get pictures because your stories need pictures, your stories need interviews, your stories need, you know, background detail. And so you're doing a lot of worker placement stuff to get all these things to put together the perfect news um, story, which is represented by the front page of your newspaper. And now, this may sound familiar because I actually did a run-through, I think a couple of months ago, for Penny Press, which was another game that had the exact same 
scenario, the exact same setting. But that game was effectively an area control auction game where you had a fixed number of reporters and you just kept bidding. Well, I'm you know, oh, you want that story? You put two reporters? Well, I'll put three reporters. Oh yeah, well, I'll put four reporters. You know, so it was, it was very much an auctiony type game. This game and while I thought Penny Press was a neat, neat game, very, very clever, and in fact, I was lucky enough to get to play it as a three-player game, and I thought it worked brilliantly, it did not work that well as a two-player game, and I was really disappointed because I love the theme so much. So along comes Extra Extra, which is the same theme, but now it's a worker placement game, and worker placement games have a much higher tendency to work well with only two players. So fingers crossed, I'm very, very excited for this one, uh, Mayfair Games in the 116. Although, again... This is still probably a try before I buy, because I'm not 100% certain of it, of extra extra. But anyway, moving on to number 35. Let's see, is that right? Yeah, 35 is Space Cadets Away Mission from Stronghold Games at booth 2329. Space Cadet Away Mission is the latest game in the Space Cadet series of games. And this is the first one that is a radical departure from what Space Cadets has always been. Space Cadets... And Space Cadets Dice Duel, and I think there's a, there's like another expansion for it. There, there's a range of games that are real-time cooperative games, or yeah, they're real-time cooperative games where everybody has a specific role they have to play on the bridge of a starship. One person is the weapons officer, one person is the captains, one person is the engineer and stuff like that. And everybody's playing their own little game to, but all working together to try to coordinate to keep the ship running and not crash into asteroids and you know avoid hostile aliens and all that sort of stuff. And I've always been bummed because I've always loved the idea of that, but it is a three-player minimum game. And so it's I've always kind of taken a pass. But now, Space Cadets Away Mission is set in the same universe, but it's a completely different style of game. It is still cooperative, but it is more of kind of like a science fiction-y cooperative dungeon crawl, where players each are, you know, it's the Away Mission. We're not, we get off the ship, we beam down to the planet, or the satellite, or, you know, wherever it is we're going, and there's a whole bunch of bad guys, and we run around this area trying to complete missions, defeat bad guys, and keep everybody else alive while rolling lots of dice. Looks like a nice solid game. I've seen some gameplay run-throughs of it. I do worry that maybe it's a little bit more dice-heavy for resolving everything, but there are some really clever elements in the dice play as well. So it's definitely a game I'd like to check out, particularly because I've always loved Space Cadets, and I've never really gotten a chance to play it much because of the three-player minimum. But now, two players can play a Space Cadets game, even if it's a radically different style of game. Anyway, so that's from Stronghold, booth 2329. Now moving on to number 34. Lanterns, the Harvest Festival from Renegade Games or Renegade Studio Games in booth uh, 3029, Renegade. This is a game that actually, last year when it was on Kickstarter, I did have the opportunity, the, the publisher contacted me, the publisher designer contacted me and asked if I wanted to do a run-through. And I have to admit, at the time I, I looked at the rules really closely, I ended up talking to the designer for quite a while about the game, and I was definitely convinced that it was a very, very solid interesting and fresh I'm fresh fresh take on tiling it's a tiling game but at the time I was just completely swamped getting ready for Essen I had a bunch of games I had to cover and I just didn't have time to cover and I wish I did because ever since then everything I've heard about this game is it's really rock solid and it's a really really um, great game at any player count 
In a nutshell, what it is, is every player is, like Carcassonne, laying tiles to a, a, a common, ever-growing, you know, location on the table. And every time I put a tile down, it has a bunch of lanterns, harvest lanterns, uh, in different colors. And the way I lay them down is very, very important because... If, say Jen is sitting across the table from me. So she's at the north side of the table. I'm at the south side of the table. When I put a tile down, all the lanterns that are on the south... If, if there are white lanterns on the south side of the tile and there are blue lanterns on the north side of the tile, that means since I'm at the south side, I'll get a white card and Jen will get a blue card. But maybe I desperately... I really want a white card, but I know she's doing well on blue cards. I don't want to give her a blue card. So I want to put it down so I can get the white, but I don't want to put it down because it gives her the blue. So maybe I rotate it, and suddenly I'm getting a yellow card, and she's getting a red card. But not only am I paying attention when I lay these tiles as to what everybody else at the table will get, because you can play up to four players, and whenever somebody puts a tile down, everybody gets something. But I'm also trying to lie the tiles down to um, match what's already on the table, because if I put a the red side of my tile next to a red tile that's already on the board, I'll get a bonus card for that, in addition to whatever direction is facing. So it looks like a very, very cool puzzle game with um, interaction that is not about players beating each up or stealing from each other, but just having to be very, very careful about because every move they make gives their opponents who are trying to beat them something that can beat them. So I, I, it just looks really, really clever. Um, and I, I've heard nothing but good things. Joel Eddy gave a really nice review to it. And I'm, I've just kicking myself ever since that I could not make the time to do the run-through for Lanterns, the Harvest Festival. But now, finally, almost a year later, it's coming out from Renegade at booth 3029. And I'm starting, by the way, folks, now to get to the point where I'm pretty confident these are games... I'm not still 100% certain about Lantern. I'd probably still try before you buy, but I'm getting pretty close to the confident that I'm going to buy. But anyway, so that was number 33. Now, moving on to number 32. Um, actually, this is cheating. This is number 32.1, point two, and point three, um, because I'm going to talk about three games now. And they are all from Game Salute, which is uh, booth 1301. And they are Princess Bride, Battle of Wits, Princess Bride, As You Wish, and Princess Bride, The Miracle Pill. Three little games that are all themed after the movie, The Princess Bride. You know, so obviously Game Salute got the license to do Princess Bride themed things and are putting out three games. All three of these are being launched at Gen Con. And while at first glance you might say, oh, well, that just means it's just some really crappily, hastily thrown together cheap tie-in to the movie because they got the license and they're just trying to milk it as much as they can. And, you know, I wouldn't blame you for thinking that. But here's the thing. These don't look like cheaply thrown together, half-baked ideas. I mean, first of all, they've got good designers behind them. Uh, Phil Duberry, who is a really, really rock-solid designer. I mean, he's got an incredible pedigree of games. Um, you know, to, to, I mean, he's doing one of them. And let's see, one of the other ones was done by... Oh, I can't remember now. But all three of these games are have experienced designers who have put out very good games in the past. So right off the bat, that, you know, speaks to a certain quality level. And then on top of that, reading 
the descriptions of these, um, you know, because that's all I really know, which is why they're still try before you buys. Uh, if, if the rules were available, I might almost be confident enough. Because, you know, I mean, Jen and I, we both love Princess Bride. It's in both of our top 10 films of all time. And, um, you know, of course, who doesn't want to do the Vicini Battle of Wits? And, um, you know, and, and uh, the, the Miracle Pill thing sounds like, you know, the uh, Miracle Max thing, trying to put a concoction together and then cover it with chocolate and it just it it looks like it captures the spirit and the humor of the movie perfectly and then the fact that uh game salute just didn't slap something together but actually went out and got experienced quality designers to put these things makes me very very excited about all three of these although like i said i'm being kind of cheap and putting them all together as one because that probably heck if you buy one you'd buy all three really but anyway so that's the princess bride trilogy from game salute at booth 1301 and then next up number 32 wrath of dragons from catalyst games at booth 417 and uh oh this one at first i actually had it quite a bit lower but fortunately, Catalyst, unlike almost everybody I've talked about up till now, had the wherewithal to actually put the rules online. So I could actually read the rules for this game and get a better idea of what it sounds like to play. And I gotta say, this sounds like a very cool game. In this game, everybody is a dragon. And the game takes place over several centuries, because of course dragons live a long time. And every round, I think, is is one of these centuries. And what you're doing is, it's, it's, it's hard, it's really a hand management game, because you have a whole bunch of cards in your hand that give you different special abilities um, if you use them in different regions of the land. Because what we're doing as dragons is trying to reap destruction and spread terror and steal uh, treasure and raise towns and all the terrible, nasty, scary things that dragons do. So, I mean, you really get to let loose with this game, but it seems like it has a fair bit of strategy to it because you've got specific regions you want to go to because the cards are in your hand, but there's a race because you can't get to a given region if another dragon is already there. And so there's a lot of planning that goes in this game, a lot of hand management. And again, from reading the rules, it sounds like really solid gameplay and very, very neat thematic gameplay. Really nice presentation and a very fun, if you can role play a little bit and just kind of get into, I mean, if you've ever wanted to have the destructive power of Smaug, now you get to. And that is Wrath of Dragons from Catalyst Games, booth 417. Looks very, very cool. I'm very excited about it. Also, as a side note here, my fingers are so, so crossed for Shadowrun Crossfire. They, um, the first expansion, there's a minor chance, the, the developers have told me there's a small chance that they might have demos of it available. But I haven't heard anything yet, so it's probably not going to happen. But uh, fingers are still crossed anyway for anybody who might be there. But anyway, back to the list. And all right, so on to number 31. All right, Tragedy Looper. Midnight Circle. This is the first expansion I've talked about so far, I think. It's really, I was surprised. I was expecting a lot of expansions on this list, but there's not very many. Of the 40-whatever games I'm going to talk about buying, I think there were only like four expansions. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's actually a really good sign that this is going to be a very, very good Gen Con. Lots of really cool, interesting new games. And then some cool expansions as well. And the first one I'm going to talk about at number 31 is Tragedy Looper Midnight Circle. Uh, from Z-Man Games at Booth 2009. Basically, what this does is it adds 12 new cases to solve to Tragedy Looper. And I've already done a run-through for Tragedy Looper. I forget how many cases it comes with. Is it nine? I forget exactly how many. So this, I think, if I recall correctly, more than doubles the number of cases you get in the game. 
And that's very, very cool. Also, apparently, three of the cases are of the same type as what comes with the base game, but then the other six are two new types of cases that apparently change the gameplay up quite a bit. Although, I couldn't tell you how, because... As I mentioned earlier, Z-Man likes to play their cards close to their vest and not really give you any information about the game until you get there. Now, to be fair, uh, this was published in Japan years ago, so if I really wanted to do my due diligence, I could probably go track it down and find out what new type of gameplay is in this expansion. But long story short, Tragedy Looper was a brilliant, innovative game, You know, and it got its... It's um, English release last year from Z-Man, and so now here we are less than a year later, and they put out their first expansion, and it looks like it could be very, very cool. And so, that's why it's on my list at number 31. And then, moving on to number 30, from Tasty Minstrel Games, Steamworks. Uh, Tasty Minstrel is number 359. <clears throat> and Steamworks looks like a very, very neat worker placement game, which is all about players actually building up the board where they're going to place their workers. Because everybody's trying to build this crazy steampunk contraption that is powered by steam or electricity or cogs, you know, kind of a cogsworth type machines. And so what we're doing is every round, we're building up our own little personal machine by laying more and more tiles and snapping them all together so that we're building a crazy machine that can do any number of things. Let's us get more tiles. Let's us, um, you know, get more energy. Let's us get points and all kinds of stuff. But the thing is, as we build our machines, we are also putting in them places where workers can be placed to activate the machines and do whatever they're supposed to do, whatever their engine is. And the interesting thing is, as I build my machine up, my opponents can come and use my machine, and I can use their machine. And so, and in doing that, we end up giving bonuses to each other and then, you know, leveraging all the really cool machines all our opponents have built. And so that it sounds, again, like a very, very cool opportunity for interplay between players that isn't about just beating each other up with sticks, but... Um, interacting in new and interesting ways. Also, the presentation looks really nice, and uh, I'm very, very interested in this one. Okay, that was number 30, Steamworks. And let's see, moving on to number 29, also from Tasty Minstrel Games. Mm. Sorry, I had to stop to get a drink of water. Throat's starting to get raw. How long have I been going now? Oh my goodness, 36 minutes. This is going to be a long one, folks. I'm only... Maybe I need to start speeding up. All right, we're going to... Uh, kicking it overdrive. Number 29, Dungeon of Fortune from Tasty Minstrel Games. And now, uh, 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 full disclosure, I actually already have a copy of this. I haven't done a run-through for it. I'm hoping I can get this run-through done this week before the show starts, but I might not make it because I'm running out of time. And again, I, I can't tell you how terrible I feel. Um, I, I maybe sound like I'm high energy, but that's just because I'm hopped up on all kinds of crazy cold flu medicine and ibuprofen and whatnot. But anyway... Dungeon of Fortune is effectively a sequel to Dungeon Roll, which is a very, very cool little dice-based dungeon plunging game, uh, plundering game. And Dungeon of Fortune is a card-based version of the same game. And the interesting thing is, they've made the game a lot simpler. Dungeon Roll, its real claim to fame was it had lots of opportunities for all kinds of really cool combo, you know, mixing up the special powers of your character and all the treasures you collect and all of your heroic party of dice that travel deeper and deeper into a dungeon as you push your luck and see how far you can get before you have to bail for fear of losing everything. Dungeon of Fortune is the same basic idea, but instead of dice, it's 
cards that represent the, the greater and greater danger that rises. And while there is less focus on all the really what makes Dungeon Roll neat, which is all the cool combinations you can do between the powers and the treasures, Dungeon Roll Fortune has a little bit of that. But what Dungeon of Fortune really pushes up the ante on is um, the, what do you call it, the push your luck. Because everybody is plundering dungeons at the same time. In Dungeon Roll, I my, my entire turn is all about me, 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 going through a dungeon, everybody else just sits back and watch. But in Dungeon of Fortune, every Every round, everybody goes deeper into a dungeon, and everybody's playing at the same time. And the push your luck comes from the fact that the last person to bail, you know, because you don't want to, you want to go as far as you can because you get more and more treasure and points and stuff like that. But if you push your luck too far, it'll all blow up in your face and you'll lose everything. So at any time you want, you can back out. But the last person to back out, whoever stays in longest, gets a huge bonus, a game-changing bonus. So you will find yourself more often than in Dungeon Roll anyway, staying against your better judgment, pushing your luck, because you know if you bail, the benefit your opponent gets will be huge. So, while you have less combination stuff you can do to think about your your own dungeon delving, you have more opportunity to think about what everybody else is doing. And you can think, well, will they be able to survive one more round? Should I push one more round now, or should I bail? Because I don't think they're going to... You know, I mean, there's a lot more uh, interesting stuff to think about in relation to everybody else around the table. And I think that may, gives it a very, very different feel. Now, Jen and I, we've only played it once. We definitely enjoyed it. And I think it's definitely a keeper for us. Well, I probably need to play it a few more times. But again, I'm making this list as if I'd never played it. As I, I'm making this list as if, as a fan of Dungeon Roll, and I knew a sequel to it, which was based on cards instead of dice, came out. This is how I would rate it on the list. From Tasty Mistral Games, number 359, that was number 29, Dungeon of Fortune. I did not speed up there at all, did I? No, I did not. I need to get going faster. All right, number 28, from USAopoly. Nefarious. And this is an interesting game because it actually came out quite a few, quite a few years ago now from another publisher who has since gone out of business. And for the longest time, everybody assumed, oh, well, I guess it's gone. We're never gonna, nobody's ever gonna get a chance to play Nefarious. But USAopoly has now gotten the rights to it and they have released it. It is from designer Donald X. Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion and Kingdom Builder and Temporum and the, uh, and, uh, Greed. And this is a very solid, interesting, uh, worker placement hand management game from that, uh, from Donald X. Vaccarino that features what he always does more than anything else is a huge amount of gameplay variability. Every time you play Nefarious, all the players are mad scientists, like, you know, from Despicable Me or something like that, you know, trying to do the best at raising funds so that they can pull off their harebrained screams and, and score a lot of infamy points, you know, because everybody is very nefarious. But every time you play as part of setup, you will put into play, if I recall correctly, I think three headline cards that change the fundamental rules of the game. The core rules of this game are super simple, in much the same way the core rules for Dominion are super simple. You you draw a hand of cards, you buy a new card, you, di you shuffle your discard pile. This game is just as simple where you're doing some simple worker placement stuff to gather resources, use those resources to play cards. But every time you play, there's going to be a different mix of headline cards that radically changes the core rules of the game. And it's interesting, the first time Jen and I played it, we thought, eh, it's okay, it was alright, nothing really, 
was just all right. But then we played it again, and it was so captivating to see how the same core underlying conceit just so radically changed with these different rules that we thought, well, there's actually something really cool here. So it's interesting. The more you play the game, the more times you play it, the more interesting it becomes as you see more and more flavors of the core gameplay. Now, to be fair... This is definitely a game that I think wants more than two because there's a lot of really interesting interaction between players where you try to guess what you think your opponent is going to do on their turn. You almost kind of bet on what they're going to do. And with only two players, that's not quite as interesting as it might otherwise be. But still, Jen and I are happy to hold on to our original first printing of Nefarious. And now there's a new version coming out for everybody. And so that's why it's my number 28 um, from USAopoly, Nefarious. All right, moving on to number 27. Welcome to the Dungeon from Yellow, which is booth 439. And this is a cool little micro game, plays very, very quick. In fact, so quick, I'm not going to spend much time talking about it. Where players are kind of doing an escalating, almost kind of like Name That Tune. If you remember that old game show from the 70s, where um, they're bragging and boasting about how likely they are to be able to plunder another dungeon full of bad guys and survive and come out the other side. And so every turn you draw a card and it gives you a little bit of information about what is potentially going to be in that dungeon that you will have to face if you are the one who... Because only one player is going to go and plunder the dungeon. And if they do and they succeed, they score a point. If they do and they fail, they well they lose a point. Everybody else says, yay! So you know, everybody else succeeds, everybody who backed out. But the thing is, when you draw a card, you have a choice to say, okay, this is in the dungeon, and I know what's, and I'm the only person who knows what's in there, so I have a better idea of what awaits me. Or you can dump it from the dungeon, but when you dump it, because you think, oh, well, that's way too dangerous, I don't want that in the dungeon, you also have to dump one of the pieces of equipment you will have as an adventurer. So you might have to, well, you know what, I'll just give up my torch. Because I know that the guy I'm getting rid of is one of the monsters that needs the torch to be defeated. So if I'm getting rid of the thing, I can get rid of a torch. But not everybody knows that. And so there's a lot of really interesting bluffing and double bluffing in this game. And Jedi, we had the original Japanese version of the game called Dungeon of Mandom. Uh, which it's just been reprinted with a bunch of extra content for Dungeon of Fortune. And we really like it. It's a cool little five-minute game. Uh, we, we find it's, uh, we've played it most on the ferry ride from, uh, Gozo to Malta, because uh, it, it's a very, very tiny thing. It doesn't take up any table space. Really neat little game. Dungeon of Fortune. And moving on to number 28. DDD. Uh, oops, I'm sorry. No, no. No, it was 20. No, 29 was Dungeon of Fortune, then 28 was Nefarious, 27 was Welcome to the Dungeon, and now, number 26, The King's Armory, from Gatekeeper Games, uh, booth 3036. Now, I did a run-through for this last year for the prototype. I can't wait to see the final product, because my prototype was very rough and ready, really kind of ugly components, so I never actually got to see what the real final game looks like. But the core game that I played a year ago, I already know, is a lot of fun. It's a cooperative tower defense game. And while there are a lot of game, board games and card games on the market that claim to be tower defense, you know, starting with, um, oh, I don't know. I can't think of the name now. Oh, uh, Castle Panic or Goblins vs. Zombies. I mean, there's a lot of these tower defense style games. But the King's Armory, as I would say, the, the closest to a true video game tower defense game because... Most of the other games, you are just, you're defending the tower. 
a tower defense game is a game where you build towers to defend the castle. And that's what you do in tower defense. And it may sound like a subtle thing, but this is a game that gives you players a lot of control over how they level up their own characters who are trying to, you know, defend the castle from it seemingly endless onslaught of bad guys who have all kinds of special powers that just drive up the lanes every round, turn after turn, and just keep coming. And so you're hiring, um, you know, you're, you're hiring defenders that you're installing into towers that will become kind of automated defenses while you yourself are still running around. You're having to make tough choices about which bad guys to let through because you just can't possibly stop them, and you have to focus elsewhere. You have all kinds of really neat special powers. You level up. You get cool special abilities. It's a really well-designed, um, fast-playing, cooperative tower defense game. There's no better way to put it. And it is, like I said, the closest thing to capturing the feel of a true video tower defense game. So, anyway, that was number... Oh, I've lost track of my number. Number 26, King's Armory from Gatekeeper Games, booth 3036. Moving on to number 25. Oh my gosh, we're almost halfway there, folks. Yikes. Okay, number 25... Among the Stars Revival. This is my second expansion I'm talking about, an expansion to Among the Stars from publisher Artipia Games at booth 2329. And what can I say? Uh, I am now, I think, pretty solidly... At some point over the last couple of games, I have switched over from the try-before-you-buy into the, yeah, I would buy this. Uh, there's no two ways about it. Uh, from now on, everything, and probably King's Armory as well, and maybe Welcome to Dungeon, uh, probably Nefarious, I'm, I'm into the, yeah, I would just totally buy these, provided they're available to me. And that definitely includes Among the Stars Revival, which is an expansion for Among the Stars, which is a game Jen and I absolutely love. I've done several run-throughs for the base game and all the expansions, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. Long story short, it's a card-drafting game where players are building satellites in, or in outer space and mixing and matching all kinds of special powers to, to score a lot of points. It works great. It's a wonderful, fun game. And this new expansion, while it's probably my least favorite expansion to date because one of the major things it adds is player interaction in the form of Scrooge, in that I now have the ability, depending on what cards I draft, to really slow down your ability to build your own satellite. Although you then have the opportunity, depending on how things go, to turn lemons into lemonade and, um, you know, overcome those obstacles. But there's actually other cool things, too, that actually work quite nicely. It comes with a new set of special two-player rules, which are kind of a fun, fresh way to mix it up to play two-player, and um, which are actually backward compatible with the base game. And then there's also the notion of these ambassadors that are available that um, players get involved in kind of this tug-of-war game that is a whole new dimension where you're in a tug-of-war with the player to your left and a tug-of-war with your player to the right to try to get these alien ambassadors to favor you so that you can get all kinds of special abilities. And that was actually a very, very cool addition, particularly if you play with more than two. It's, it's a good addition with two, but it's definitely better with more. So while it's definitely a must-get because you know it's just more... Among the Stars stuff. Among the Stars stuff is awesome. Although, to be fair, I think this expansion of all my expansions so far is my least favorite because it's better with more than two, and it does add some kind of take that stuff. But even still, it was very, very cool stuff in number 25, Among the Stars Revival. Now, on to number 24, Fidelitas, which I've also done a run-through for from designer um, Jason Gatarski and Phil Dubarry. They teamed up. 
and made a very, very cool game. This is a small, fast playing, just a quick little deck of cards as players are engaged in subterfuge in this little kingdom trying to move all sorts of town folk from one location to another to try to achieve secret goals, like get um, all the artisans in this building over here, or spread all the town guards into all different types of buildings. And so everybody has their own special goals they're trying to complete to score points, and everybody's working with the same group of people in the center of the table. And Jen and I, we definitely enjoyed this game. Um, a fun little game. I'd love to get a full final copy because all I ever had was a prototype of it, so I would definitely buy it on site. But it's interesting. We enjoyed it a lot, but we only ever played it as a two-player game. And now I've heard from other people since who have played it with a four, you know, that the more player you get around the table, the more um, chaotic it gets and the less you can plan and the more frustrating it gets. I can't speak to that at all. All I can say is Jen and I found it to be a very charming, beautifully rendered, lovely art, fun little game as a two-player game. We enjoy it quite a bit, and that is Fidelitas. Okay, number 23. See how I've sped up now? Oh, I'm just cranking through these. Number 23 is New York 1901 from Blue Orange Games at booth 249. And, I mean... If you are at all interested in getting this game, this is one of the ones you are going to have to put high on your list because it's going to sell out. They only have, they don't have very many copies. They only have 50 copies of this to sell every day, and they're probably going to sell out within the first hour every day. I would be willing to bet. So it might be a tough one to pick up. Although, it doesn't really matter. If you don't pick it up at Gen Con, it's going to be widely available within a month anyway, so don't worry about it too terribly much. That's true for almost all of these games. I mean, even if you don't get them at Gen Con, I mean, you'll get them within a couple months afterwards. It's not that big a deal. But anyway, uh, New York 1901, I've done a run-through for it, so I won't spend too much time talking about it. But, mark my words, in um, 10 years from now, it's going to be getting a really cool 10-year anniversary, the same way that Ticket to Ride does or Settlers of Catan does, because this is a future evergreen game like Ticket to Ride or Settlers of Catan. This is going to be around for a long time, because the core gameplay is just so rock solid. It's a really great gateway game that um, comes with several different variable ways you could play to increase the, the challenge and the depth so that it can become more of a gamer's game and less of a gateway game. But you could still just bust this out and play with anybody. It's always going to be a compelling, fun experience every time you play where, as players who are all you know real estate developers at the turn of the century in New York are trying to build taller and taller and taller skyscrapers. It's a lot of fun. Definitely, um, I mean, heck, at this point, I'd happily get rid of Ticket to Ride and replace it with New York 1901. For me, it's almost a Ticket to Ride killer. And that's really saying something. And I think uh, years from now, people are, are going to... I mean, it's, it's going to stick around. It's definitely going to have legs. It's a really rock-solid game. You can see my run-through for more. But that was my number 23 from Blue Orange Games, New York 1901. I mean, bear in mind, it's definitely a lighter game. Definitely on, on the light end of the spectrum. But great, great, fantastic gateway game. Ticket to Ride killer. Yes, that's right, folks. I said it. Crazy. All righty. Number 22. Here's my third uh, expansion, Suburbia 5 Star from Bezier Games, booth 2617. 
Right, okay, what is this all about? Well, it's adding a whole bunch more tiles to suburbia, um, which is in and of itself a good thing. And But what's really interesting is they add this new concept of stars. In addition to the base game where tiles that you add to your suburb, as everybody's competing to build a, to make the best suburb in all of suburbia, to score the most points, and you do that by grading income and um, making your... Uh, you know, uh, being attractive enough as a suburb to get people to move in, which are worth points. Now, there is a third element to the game to keep it attractive. In addition to making more money, in addition to being attractive so more people move in, you now also have star ratings on a lot of the tiles that are in the game. And you are competing to be at the top of the star rating because it gives you... Oh, my goodness. <coughs> oh, my goodness. All right, starting to break down now. Mm. Because, well, basically, it gives you this whole additional thing to compete with other players. And you can focus on that if you want to. You don't have to. You can ignore that and focus on other stuff. But it adds an entirely new element. I won't talk about it too terribly long because you can see my, my run-through I did to learn more about it. But if I didn't already have a copy, I would definitely be picking up a copy at the show. Particularly because it, it's, it's hardly going to cost anything. Um, anyway, that is Suburbia 5 Star... And, you know, okay, we're at number 22. Should I, you know what? I think I'm going to make it to 20, and then I'm going to take a break. Because the mucus, folks, it is really backed up. And I need to I need to go clear out the pipes. But we're just going to get through a couple more, and then we'll stop. Um, and I'll just, I'll, we'll do a top 20 when we come back. But anyway, so that was number 22. Number 21, Eminent Domain Microcosm. From Tasty Minstrel Games at booth 359. I actually did a run-through for this a long time ago when it was back on Kickstarter. I actually played it for the first time at Gen Con last year. And I just got to say, this is an excellent, excellent micro game. A little micro deck builder. Where players are trying to build their deck as fast as they can. In the same way you do in its big brother, Eminent Domain. This really captures the feel of Eminent Domain in a very, very fast-playing game, which I think it comes with, like, 19 cards. How do you make a deck builder out of, like, 19 cards? It's, it's a miracle, this game. It's a lot of fun. It plays very fast, and it's fantastic with two, which is a, very, a big rarity amongst the micro-game genre. I mean, all their love letter-style games, they're always terrible as two-player games. But Eminent Domain Microcosm is a fun, fast-playing game where players are trying to colonize plants as quick as they can um, and, or, or, you know, or take them over with warfare, build up their science track. There's a lot you do, which is a very few amount of cards in a very short space of time. Neat, neat game number 21, Eminent Domain Microcosm. Microcosm. Phew. Okay, so that's it. We're stopping there. I'm going to take a break now. I think Jen would probably... Uh, she doesn't want to admit, but yes, she also needs to cough violently at this point. So we're going to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> we'll be right back uh, right after this. Talk to you soon, folks. Hey, everybody. Thanks for your patience. Welcome back. All right, I think we're ready to continue now that I have coughed up roughly a lung, or at least half a lung full of goop. And all righty, so let's keep going. Try to get the pace up a little bit with number 20, The Grizzled, which is from Cool Mini or Not, booth 1317. And this is a really interesting one. It's a cooperative card game set in the trenches of World War I as soldiers basically 
engage in brave acts of camaraderie trying to support each other to get through all the trials and tribulations that young men went through at that time. And uh, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it could be an incredibly grim and dark game because, of course, it's a very grim and dark subject matter. But the game chooses to focus on the brighter, more uplifting side. Again, the camaraderie, the, the brothers in arms type thing, the esprit de corps that um, was central to these guys being able to make it out alive, those who did. And so I'm really, really intrigued by it. I've actually seen a very good run-through of the gameplay from um, Ricky Royal, who does an absolutely fantastic series of videos called Box of Delights. You should definitely check it out. And the, the gameplay itself looks good and solid, uh, a very fast-playing little uh, card game puzzler almost kind of reminds me of Onorim or something like that. But very, very thematically grounded, um, you know, beautifully presented, and I think I'm attracted to it more than anything else because it's willing to take on such a harrowing subject matter, but, you know, kind of show it in a, uh, in, in a kind of an upbeat beat light. My only worry about it is that the subject matter might be too much of a turnoff for Jen, who generally wants her subject matter to be genuinely uplifting and upbeat and light, as opposed to kind of looking for the light in the darkness, which is what this game is definitely doing. So, very, very cool, uh, very, very brave game. Number 20, The Grizzled. And moving on to number 19 is Codenames from Czech Games Edition, booth 2052, and designer Vladishevatl. And I, I just tell you right now, folks, I mean, this is going to be the party game of the year. Um, this is going to get a lot of awards at the end of the year for best party game. Everybody who's played it loves it. I mean, the, the core co concept, the core gameplay conceit from designer Vladishevatl, who is just such an incredibly richly talented designer. I mean, everything he does is just fantastic. And this seems to be no exception. Uh, it's just going to make for an amazing party game where it's a team game where everybody, you know, players on a team, one person has to give a clue that everybody else has to, you know, decipher to figure out what's going on. And I'm really not going to spend a lot of time describing. I mean, it, it, there's lo it, it, you, you can read the rules for it online. What I will mention, though, is interesting is... I was never really going to give this a second thought originally because party games are terrible as two-player experiences. Absolutely awful. Um, very rarely do they work out well. But I eventually got to read the rules for this, and I was actually pretty impressed by how the two-player variant works here, where it goes from being a team game to a cooperative game. And in all honesty, I can see Jen and I having fun playing this as a two-player game, just kind of as like a little fun kind of quickie, five or ten minute filler cooperative game, which is something we don't really have a lot of. Um, fillers don't tend to be cooperative, so I'm really excited to give it a try based on that. And then on top of that, it would be good to have a party game. I mean, I, I'm looking at my wall of 400 games. There's no party games up there. It is probably a good idea to have a party game on hand, just in case somehow a party were to ever find its way here, or I were ever to find my way to a party, which is not something that generally happens. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. So anyway, that's number 19, code names. Everybody's going to be playing this by the end of the year. All right, moving on to number 18. Um, let's see, from Tasty Minstrel Games again at booth 359, it is Gold West, which is a very, very cool... <coughs> oh, oh, goodness. Sorry. Hold on a second. Sorry, folks. Uh... <coughs> oh. Oh. Sorry, Tasty Minstrel Games. <clears throat> mm. uh, I will 
see if I can find this to edit it out. Anyway, though, Tasty Minstrel Games, number 18, Gold West, which is a, a Old West, American West prospecting game where you know players are trying to get gold and silver and tin and copper and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, trying to become the best, most successful miner around. And the interesting thing about this game is it you get a very high level of, what do you call it, precognition. You have a lot of information about what is going to be available to you in the mines in the next round. And the next round. And for like the next three or four or five rounds. And so... Every round, while you are actually planning what you're going to do in a given round to you know, try to get ahead, because you're trying to grab land for mines and you're trying to do a bunch of stuff, you also have this long-term game, this long-term plan you're trying to work out because you can see exactly what the state of your mind is going to be in five rounds. And so you could be going for quick, immediate grabs right now, or you could be going for long-term investments that will pay off many, many turns in the future. And they'll pay off much, much bigger. But that means in the meantime, you won't have been doing those short-term grabs, and you'll be running on fumes and maybe running into some trouble that way. You know, I actually got to play a prototype of it last year at Gen Con. Really, really impressed by it. And in fact, it reminded me a lot of Stefan Feld's Macau, which has a similar notion of, you know, you're making plans and trying to go for short-term, quick grabs, or long-term, really, really big moves. And this game does the same thing, while also having an almost uh, uh, Settlers of a Catan-ish style land-grabbing game going on as well. It's really, really neat. Liked it a lot. Cannot wait to play the full version. The final version. And bear in mind, if you if this is all interesting to you, it's probably another one of those games you're going to want to run after fairly quick because there are only going to be a very small number of copies at the show. So it's probably going to be gone pretty quick. Gold West, number 18 from Tasty Minstrel Games. Move on to number 17. Okay. I think this is my final expansion. So only four expansions out of whatever it was, 40-some games. Alrighty. It is Heroes Wanted. The Stuff of Legend from Action Phase Games, number booth number 335. And I've already done a run-through for it, so I already know it's a very, very cool expansion that adds a lot of neat ideas to Heroes Wanted, which was already a very, very fun card-based superhero game where... The, you were kind of superheroes in the same way the Mystery Men are, are superheroes. You're really kind of on the low end of the totem pole, just trying to stop jaywalkers and stuff like that. And the game had a wonderful sense of humor, uh, a really creative spirit, and really, really rock-solid, very, very clever gameplay mechanisms all about hand management and trying to make the right move at the right time as everybody's racing to be the best superhero they can be and take out the most bad guys. And uh, so, I mean... It, it, you, you get, what is it, um, is it two new missions? Or I forget if it was two or four new missions. You get a whole bunch of new superheroes. You get a whole bunch of new supervillains. And in fact, one of the superheroes is actually based on Jen. So that actually uh, gives us a, an even more personal reason to want to pick up this expansion. I don't know, uh, Jen is actually, well, so Jen is uh, going to shout out her superhero catchphrase. Sphere not. Sphere not. She says that every once in a while now. Um, anyway, so if, if you liked Heroes Wanted, you just got to pick it up. Um, you, you just have to. I mean, it's it's definitely one of those must-have expansions. Not just because Jen is in the game, although you know I, I, that that doesn't hurt either. But it it's it, it just it's funny. It adds so much more stuff to the game. Absolutely love it. That was Heroes Wanted 
the stuff of legend. Okay, moving on to number 16. From Portal Games, booth 2052, Rattle, Battle, Grab the Loot. And this is a pirate plundering the high seas game where everybody ha- every player has their own pirate ship, or actually, well, potentially several pirate ships, because the core central mechanism of this game that's very, very cool is at the beginning of a round, what you do is there's a, you, you take a whole big handful of dice that represent all the player's ships. And actually, sorry, I think each player does have only one ship. Um, it represents the player's ships, represents... Um, you know, merchant ships that are, you know, in the, in the Spanish main that you could try to, you know, capture and, and plunder. It represents um, naval ships that are chasing down all the pirates. And you take all these dice, represent all these ships, and you just toss them all into the box lid. And so they all roll all over the place and bounce off each other, and they all come to rest. And then that becomes the state of the Spanish main as players start moving their ships around trying to stay away from the Navy and, you know, capture the loot. And the beautiful thing about this game is, the thing that I'm really attracted to more than anything else is, it's not a game where players are trying to destroy each other. It's a race where we're just trying to get to the best loot as fast as we can. And in between rounds, when you're doing this very cool dice manipulation thing, the rest of the game is devoted to taking all your loot, taking the ill-gotten gains, and converting that into upgrades for your ships. And at the beginning of the game, your pirate ship starts out as this little tiny thing, which is like a, a single sail and a, and a little cannon. But over the course of the game, you can expand your ship, make it bigger, give it more mass, give it more sails, give it more cannons, give it more special abilities. And, um, you know, actually, I, originally I was really drawn to the game because of the whole dice thing. It's, it's very, very flashy. It looks like a lot of fun. Plays very quick. Very, very clever new system. But the more I learn about the game, the more I'm intrigued by the whole element of the economy of of upgrading your ship and going from this little tiny ship to this massive man of war by the end of the game. It looks like a lot of fun. Definite. Um, I'm very, very excited about it. Number 16, Rattle Battle Grab the Loot from Portal Games. Now, on to number 15, Cthulhu Realms from Tasty Minstrel Games, booth 359. And um, actually, I do have a run-through for this. It'll be going up today or tomorrow, so you'll be able to see this before the the Kickstarter campaign goes. And in all honesty, if I'm honest, if I hadn't already played the game, this would have still made my list, but it would have been a lot lower on my list. But I know how good it is, because Jen and I played it a few times now, and we really, really enjoy it. Um, It's interesting. The game, Cthulhu Realms, is actually effectively the spiritual sequel to Star Realms, which was a monster, monster deck-building hit from late last year that everybody's playing. I mean, it's just it's already spawned tons and tons of expansion content. And what happened was, Michael Mendez, the head honcho of Tasty Mitchell Games, he really likes Star Realms, like everybody does. As again, a very, very fast playing deck building duel where you're trying to build up your, your squadron of starfighters and do enough damage to your opponent to win before they do damage to you and, and all that. So Michael thought the core game was really cool, but started playing with the mechanisms a bit and tweaking them. And eventually he got to the point where 
uh, he liked his version of the game more than the base game. And so he got in contact with the designer of the original game, Darwin Castle. And the two of them started collaborating to work on what ultimately would become Cthulhu Realms, which basically takes the core gameplay of Star Realms, the core gameplay exactly the same, but does a lot of really interesting tweaks. Kind of turbocharges the early game, um, streamlines some of the elements of the game, and at the same time, creates a lot more complexity in the game too. Star Realms which I played the digital version of online a few times, is a nice little deck builder. It's, it's very simple, very streamlined, very straightforward, works great, does exactly what it sets out to do. Cthulhu Realms is kind of like a 2.0 of that, that streamlines some of the elements, but gives you a lot more opportunities for combo-tastic gameplay, more so than what Star Realms did. And Star Realms was already chock-a-block with that. I mean, that's what Star Realms' claim to fame was. You can make incredibly strong combo decks almost you know, instantly. And Cthulhu Realms just takes that to an 11. It also is a game that, unlike Star Realms, can be played with three or four players right out of the box. Not that Jim Darren or I care about that. But it's, ta- it's changed the, what do you call it, the outer space... Battlestar Galactica type setting and replaced it. It's set on Earth. It's the end times. Cthulhu and the Elder Gods, they are arising. The whole world's about to be destroyed and players are running cults trying to drive each other insane. And while it could be a very dark and grim telling of that Lovecraftian tale, the art is absolutely gobsmackingly gorgeous, adorable, cute, funny stuff. In fact, I mean, there are plenty of cards that literally just make us laugh out loud when we first would play them. And so the game, the the core gameplay is an interesting evolution of the core Star Realms, and the presentation is a lot more charming and personable. It's not the cold, sterile reaches of space. It's instead a very cute, funny, and... um, in-your-face battle for supremacy among cults, you know, doomsday cults. It's it's quite silly, and quite frankly, by all for all intents and purposes, it should not be a game Jen and I like at all. It's got a lot of you know, kind of really aggressive in-your-face dueling. We generally don't like that. Um, Jen would normally be put off by anything that's Cthulhu-based. She just doesn't like that kind of horrific imagery. But everything about this game just fires on all cylinders, and we just absolutely fell in love with it. We enjoy it quite a bit, and I cannot recommend it enough. If I didn't already own it, I would definitely pick it up. That is Cthulhu Realms, number 15. And I finally understand why everybody's so cuckoo for Star Realms. Although, as far as I'm concerned, having played both of them, Cthulhu Realms, not surprisingly, it is the evolution. It is the 2.0. So to me, it is the much better game. And you can see my run-through hopefully coming up in the next couple days before the show starts to see why. Okay, number 14. Oh, I lied. I've got one more. My fifth um, expansion. Shadow Rift Archfiends from Game Salute, booth 1301. And I did a run-through. Actually, Jen and I did a run-through. It was Jen's second run-through she, video she ever participated in. We did a run-through for Shadow Rift years ago, it seems like. We absolutely loved the core game. Thought it was you know, a brilliant cooperative fantasy deck builder where each player was building their own deck. There was also a town deck that we were trying to protect. There was visitor decks that in, inter, interact with the town deck that's constantly growing and changing as you know, villagers join and leave our 
village that we're trying to protect because each of us has our own deck representing the heroes that we're trying to save the village. And then the monsters have their own deck that are constantly... It was a brilliant, brilliant core system. We liked it a lot. And we've been super stoked for this expansion forever. And it's finally coming out now. And it promises to add a whole bunch of new stuff to clean up some of the admittedly kind of iffy elements that were in the original game. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's a buy on site because the core game itself is so great. And that was number 14, Shadowrift Archfiends. Now moving on to number 13, Stockpile from um, Nauvoo Games, booth 348. Stockpile is a game of buying low and selling high on the stock market. And probably its biggest claim to fame is it works well as a two-player game, which is pretty much unheard of. Stock market simulation games always need to have at least three players to, to simulate a vibrant, exciting um, unpredictable market, but this game works. Well, don't get me wrong; it works well with you know with higher player counts. But it works really well as a two-player game too. And the thing that makes it different from all the other games out there is its focus on insider trading, because every round where players are going to try to buy low and then later on sell high, every player gets their own private piece of insider information that will let them know that stock X is going to explode. It's going to go through the roof. Or stock Y is going to tank. Or stock Z is going to pay dividends. And so, I know something about a stock that Jen doesn't know. And so, I try to make buys that are going to benefit me because I've got this knowledge without cluing Jen in on what it is I know that she doesn't. I, if I know something's about to tank, I try to sell it. Before it tanks. And then everybody else wonders, well, is he selling that because it's about to tank? Or is he just selling that because he needs some money because he's broke right now? There's so much of this game is about reading your opponents. And um, it's, it's just absolutely brilliant. Wonderful, wonderful game. And uh, you know, we really enjoy it a lot. And that was number 13. Stockpile. Number 12. Trombon from Mayfair Games at booth 116. Okay, this is a fairly... Actually, what people are referring to it as is a gamer's version of Lost Cities. And, you know, I don't know that I'd seen that originally, but I've heard so many people say it. I, I guess I can kind of see that. It's a, It's a... It's practically an abstract. There is a theme. Players are helping trying to build the tramways in... I think it's Munich? In the, at the early turn of the century, if I recall correctly, some big German city. I think it was Munich. If not Munich, some other really big city. But what we're doing is we are trying to build lines. And we have a handful of cards that can be used for several different things. We can use our cards to expand the red line or the green line or whatever. Or we can use our cards to create more passenger demand for the lines we're trying to build. Or we can use our cards just to make more money. Because if we don't make enough money, we can't build our, our lines like we need to do and, and build our trains that will actually run our lines. So every turn, we got a handful of cards. There's only so much we can do. And when we're building our lines, this is where the Lost City things come in, we're trying to build them in a uh, ascending... You know, I, I want to build the green line with a green 1, and then a green 2, and then a green 3, all the way up from green 1 to green 10. And if I could do that and then put a train on there, that would be the perfect line that would score me bajillions of points every time green passengers want to ride the green line. But of course... 
those cards aren't just going to fall into my hand where I happen to get the green 1, the green 2, the green 3, and the 4. Chances are I'm going to get the green 3, and the green 7, and the green 10. And so I could make that a line of just a, a, a very short green line of the 3, the 7, and the 10. Because once I put the 7 down, uh, after that, all I can put is an 8, a 9, or a 10. So I put the 7 down. Then do I put the 10 down, or do I wait and hope that I can get a green 8 or a 9 before I get that 10? Because the longer my line is, the more it's going to pay off. But Maybe I'm not going to get that because Jen can see I'm trying to get that, and she's just taking um, you know any green cards that are coming in. She's just converting them into cash and keeping them out of the uh, you know out of the game. And it's a really clever game, very fast playing. We 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 played it once now. Uh, I got the German version of it from Lookout Games, and we like it. A lot. We like it a lot, a lot. So much so that it has made the top of my list. Um, and again, this is kind of... I, I don't know how excited I would have been if I hadn't already played it. But I have played it, and oh my gosh, it is so much fun. It, it, it does suffer maybe a little bit from luck of the draw, but the core gameplay is so good. There are so many different paths to victory you can pursue, so many different ways you can build up your lines, and you are so directly involved with what your opponent is doing. I mean, because every step of the way, because we're competing for the same lines. So you can see what my green line is. I can see what hers is. Do I just give up on the green line? Do I try to compete with her on the green line? Do I focus on another line? It's just really rock solid. I can't recommend enough Trombon. Now, moving on to number 11. Oh, we've almost cracked the top 10, folks. Number 11 uh, from AEG Games, uh, booth 801, is Valley of Kings Afterlife. And now as it happens, this is actually a standalone game, and it also doubles as an expansion for Valley of Kings. And so you, you can just buy it standalone, or you could treat it as an expansion. And I have never played Valley of Kings, but I've been hearing for the longest time that it is an amazing deck builder, an absolutely phenomenal deck builder, full of really cool, fresh new ideas. And um, I, I've, I've certainly read about it, I've read the rules, I've seen the videos of it, and i got to agree, it's a very, very impressive design. And I've just never gotten around to getting the base game over here in Europe. And so now, an expansion standalone game is coming that adds a whole bunch of new cards, and if I were in Gen Con, nothing could stop me from picking up a copy because I've just been wanting to get this game for so long. Uh, and um, gosh, I spend much time talking about it. I've spent so much time. I mean, the, the game's been around for quite a while. It's a deck builder where the instead of buying cards from a big central pile like Dominion or a bunch of piles like Dominion, you're buying from a pyramid. There's three cards, and you can buy any of those three cards at the bottom of the pyramid. Then there's two cards above that, and then there's one card at the top of the pyramid. And what happens is when you buy one of those base pyramid cards to add to your deck, the cards that were above it come toppling down, and then you rebuild the pyramid. So you've got a very, very cool, unique way to um, make cards available where you have access access to some cards right um, at the beginning. But if I take some of those cards, I give my opponent access before I get access to cards that come later. So that's a really big deal. But then the other cool deal about the game that I have since seen in some other uh, uh, deck builders as well, but as far as I know, Valley of the Kings is the first game that really pushed this, so they really should get the credit, is the notion that, yeah, I'm trying to build up my deck you know, to become stronger and stronger, to let me get more cards and all that, but... To score points, I have to kind of obliterate my deck. I need to pull cards out of my deck and store them away in my crypt, you know, because it has this ancient Egyptian theme, um, to actually 
register my cards for points. So I always have these tough choices of I want to get more cards, I want to make my deck stronger, but I also want to rip my deck apart so I can score all these points. And I have seen this now in a few other deck builders, and it works brilliantly. Absolutely love it. So I've known for quite a while that I very much want to play Valley of Kings. And in all honesty, if I were at Gen Con, I'd probably buy the base game and the expansion. Uh, just because it looks so, so great. Although I've never actually played it firsthand. But I believe the hype. That's number 11, Valley of Kings Afterlife. Okay, now to the top 10. Oh my gosh, we're almost there, folks. Gonna make it, gonna make it. We can make it. Hang on. Alrighty. Number 10 is Isle of Sky from Mayfair Games, booth 116. And I haven't played this yet. I'm hoping to get a copy of the Lookout games you know, within the next week or two because I'm really excited about it. This is a game where everybody... It, it's a tile land game where I'm building my little... Um, Scottish countryside. I think it's Scottish. I, I think. Well, you know, let's say it's Scottish. I might be wrong about that, but I believe it's a Scottish countryside. You know, trying to grab tiles that will line up to score me the most points by having you know the most prestigious countryside that I built up for myself. But the thing is, at the beginning of every round, I can't just grab whatever tile I want. I get three tiles in my hand, and then I have to set a price for these tiles. You know, this tile costs two bucks. This tile costs five bucks. This tile, no one can buy. It's going to get discarded. Now, so I have to set these three tiles up. And at the same time, everybody else is doing the same. Jen is doing the same thing with the three tiles she ended up grabbing. And then everybody at the same time reveals what prices they've set. And then everybody takes turn buying tiles from each other. And that whole I split, you buy mechanism that you see in games like Shiteno or um, Castle of Mankind, Ludwig, always works so well. It is such a great way to create really deep interaction between players because the tough, tough decisions come from, I want this tile so bad. Um, uh, So I want it, so I'll set it to a value of two because then when I buy it, it, I'll, I'll get it practically for nothing. But if I set the price too low, somebody else will buy it before I get a chance to buy it because other people get first dibs. Um, if I get, but if I sit, if I can see that it's a tile that my opponent doesn't want or need, she won't take it. So I can set the price low. But she sees that I have set the price so low and she knows I need it really bad. She might buy it anyway just because. Okay, well then, all right, all right, well, I'll set the price high and then she won't buy it. But how high do I set it before it's so expensive that it wasn't worth it for me to buy in the first place? And so while I'm thinking about all this stuff, my opponent's thinking the same thing. Everybody reveals the prices they set at the same time and oh my gosh, I I, I just can't wait to give it a try. Now the problem with these sorts of games is I have rarely seen more AP inducing um, mechanisms than trying to figure out, right, I want this really bad for myself. I know my opponent wants it. How much is too much for them to spend, but enough for not too much for me to spend? You know, that kind of thing. The beauty part of this game is everybody is doing those computations at the same time. Normally in other games like Shiteno or uh, Castleman King Ludwig, there's always one person whose job it is to set the price for everything and then everybody else, everybody has to sit and stare and wait for them to grind through and try and figure out what are the perfect prices. In this game, everybody's doing it at the same time. So everybody's suffering AP at the same time and I just think that one little twist is so brilliant and is going to make a mechanism that we already love 10,000 times better. So I can't wait. I know I love this mechanism. It seems like it's maybe the best implementation of this mechanism I've ever seen, and that's why it made my number 10 Isle of Sky from Mayfair Games. Booth 116. Okay. 
Ahem. Moving on to number nine. Uh, Spirits of the Rice Paddy from eight games. Ape, that's A-P-E. Um, in booth 1537. Spirits of the Rice Paddy, I got to play that as a prototype with the designer, Phil DeBerry, last year at Gen Con. And Jen and I have since played it a few times with a prototype I brought back because I did a run-through for the prototype. So I should say right up front, I already have a fair bit of experience playing this game. But honestly, even if I never have, I think this game might have rated this high because I was super... This was one of my top 10 games going into Gen Con 2014. And when I, when I just wanted to play the demo, and I got to play the demo. Now, it's in my top 10 for Gen Con 2015, because the game is actually being published now. And I just gotta say, the game is phenomenal. It is a farming simulation set in Asia, where everybody is trying to um, be the most successful rice paddy farmer. And so, you are you know, hiring more farmers to work for you and getting um, oxen who can do a lot of the, the manual labor and clearing out your field so you can plant more rice and all the kind of stuff you would expect. But the core thing that makes this game so brilliant is the thematic way they represent the way rice is grown in these countries because you have to flood your farmland for the rice to grow. And what happens is, if you flood your farmland for the rice to grow, then your people can't work the farmland. So every round, you have this very interesting balancing act of trying to let all the water out of some of your rice paddies and so that the water travels downhill. You empty out the from like your rice paddy number one so that you can plant stuff there, and you shunt it all into rice paddy number two, where you had already planted in the previous turn. And so, now that it's flooded, the rice will start growing there. And the other area is not flooded, so you can start you know, um, you know, clear cleaning out that area to get ready for more stuff. So, this rising and falling tides, as you manipulate the water, and move it from one patty to another is already gobsmackingly brilliant. But then there's another element as well. Because I'm not only manipulating the water just within my own patties, but the water goes downhill. It travels from my patties to my opponent's patties. You know, it eventually, once it goes down, down, down and can't go any farther, it's, I, I can't just make it go back uphill. It's going to continue to go downhill into Jen's rice patties. So any runoff from my rice patties can be helping, can be a huge benefit to my opponent who gets the water because they're further downhill. The game is just bonkers brilliant. It's probably Phil DeBerry's best design to date, and he's made a lot of really, really clever games. Jen, I love it a lot. And also, there's also the spirits of the Rice Paddy part, because we are when we're not doing all of our, our normal stuff, we are also um, beseeching the spirits. And um, the, comes, the game comes with a whole bunch of cards. It gives you tons of special powers, depending on which spirits you um, try to get on your side that can you know change all the rules for the game. It's just absolutely a wonderful, wonderful game. My number nine, Spirits of the Rice Paddy. Moving on to number eight, Kraftwagen from ADC Blackfire, although they'll actually be at Mr. B Games booth, which is 2330. Kraftwagen is the latest game from designer Matthias Kramer, who a few months ago made my top 10 favorite game designers of all time, because everything he's done has been brilliant. Glenn Moore, Lancaster, Rococo, Helvetia. I mean, the guy has just got it going on. His, I, there's just something about his brain where he takes 
um, gameplay mechanisms that are very well established, uh, you know, have been played with by lots of other developers, lots of other designers, but then just turns them on their head and creates new, crazy, innovative stuff. And Croftwagon is interesting, and is this is his first design where he's kind of revisiting a gameplay mechanism he had done in a previous game. If Glenmore is already my favorite Matthias Kramer game, and Croftwagen is kind of Glenmore 2.0 because it takes the same basic player rondelle system where everybody's on a rondelle and whoever's in last place gets to make their next move and jump forward. You can, you've seen this mechanism in Thebes, in, um, in Takedo. You see it in a lot of games. And um, he has introduced it here in a game where players are running their own competing turn-of-the-century German automotive companies. And we are competing to attract the most customers, the most affluent customers, to our car design so we can sell them our cars. We are also competing to make the fastest cars in the world so we can compete on the Grand Prix and score a lot of points that way. Um, we are also doing tons of R&D and hiring all kinds of engineers who give us all kinds of special powers. And the game is just brilliantly designed. I have to admit, I already own the German version. But again, Matthias, even if I hadn't played it, and the first place you could ever get Kraftwagen in the world was at Gen Con, it would still be in my top 10, sight unseen, because Matthias Kramer does not fail. He makes fantastic game after fantastic game. And I can already confirm, and you can see my run-through if you want to see more, that Kraftwagen is no exception. It's an excellent game. It's my number 8 for Gen Con 2015. Now, on to number 7. Motainai. From Asmati Games, booth 549. And Motainai is effectively, from designer Carl Chuddick, the spiritual sequel to Glory to Rome. And um, Glory to Rome, I think, is in my top 20 games of all time. So in my top 20 or my top 30. Glory to Rome is a brilliant, brilliant card game. It is the granddaddy of using cards for multiple different uses, which is my favorite game mechanism in the world. I love it every time, you know, in, in, in Race for the Galaxy, in Glory to Rome, um, any game that does it, it, I just, it instantly elevates. And Glory to Rome, to date, is still the best at doing this kind of one card, multiple uses thing. Motainai is... But, but the problem with Glory to Rome is it's been impossible to get forever. It's been out of print. Um, you know, It commands very, very high prices. And while I'm very lucky to have a copy, I'm very happy that Motainai is coming out because it's, it's streamlining some of the ideas um, that were in Glory to Rome and um, also making some changes that I really like. One thing that we don't like, my Jen, my wife and I don't like about Glory to Rome is it's a fairly aggressive game. It features this kind of almost go fish element where I can take a guess and see if I, and you know, and try to guess as what cards are in my opponent's hand. And if I guess correctly, I can steal them. And it's a really, really big, poor component of the game. The reason I'm really excited about Matainai is there are no resources for players to steal from each other. So that whole Legionnaire thing is gone. And that in and of itself right there gets me excited. The notion of being able to play Glory to Rome without having to steal from my opponents is very, very attractive to me. And then the game looks really gorgeous. It has a very spare um, aesthetic, which I know Jen will absolutely love. And I, it's, it's, it's just, I expect it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. What I wonder is, will it be good enough for me to finally sell my black box addiction, edition Glory to Rome? It just might. I'm just that excited about it. Can't wait to try it. Motainai, number seven. 
Okay, number six, Artifacts, Inc. from Red Raven Games in booth 2927. Phew. Okay, this is from designer Ryan Lockett. I've done run-throughs for almost all of his games, and I am perpetually in awe of Ryan's design sensibilities. I was just talking about how Matthias Kramer is a brilliant designer because he takes standard bog standard mechanisms like worker placement or rondelles or whatever and um, always comes up with new interesting exciting takes on it ryan lockett is another designer who does that um and i'm just absolutely in awe of him i've loved every game of his i've played artifact inc ironically is one of the few games of his that i haven't ever gotten a chance to play and it is a worker placement dice game where your dice are your workers and every player is running an Indiana Jones-style archaeology firm where our dice are our archaeologists. There are Indiana Joneses um, who are running all over the world, you know, doing digs and finding artifacts and, um, you know, using those to make money so we can buy more equipment to get to find more artifacts. And from what I've seen, the gameplay looks really solid. The other thing that's interesting about Ryan Lockett's games is not only is he a really clever designer, he also is a wonderful artist and he does all the art for his own games. And all of his games are beautiful, evocative, wonderful places. The art just makes the world come to life and you want to be in these places. And Artifact Inks is no different. Once again, he's done all his own art. And so I fully expect this game to be phenomenal. One of my favorite games of the year, just based on the pedigree of the designer slash artist, Ryan Lockett. And that's why I'm super stoked for number six, Artifacts Inc. Number five. Uh, is Mysterium, which you can find at the Asmodee booth 1517. Now, full disclosure, I already own Mysterium. I got the Portal Games Edition at Essen last year. We think it's a phenomenal game. I've done a run-through for it. It's a very, very cool game where one player is a ghost who is kind of invading the dreams of other players, but instead of doing some kind of Freddy Krueger nightmare stuff, the ghost is trying to drop prophetic visions of... Um, that the other players are supposed to interpret. They need to interpret the dreams they have that the ghost gives them so that they can basically help the ghost rest in peace because the ghost has been haunting this mansion for a hundred years and cannot move on until their name has been cleared because they were accused of a murder they didn't commit. So the investigators are trying to find out who really committed the murder by interpreting all these freaky, far-out, beautiful art dream cards that the ghost gives to them. It's a brilliant system. It's basically Dixit turned into a game instead of a party activity, and we absolutely love it. Now, this new version that's coming out, I don't know if I would be first in line to grab it. It has a lot of really cool enhanced um, components that look absolutely fantastic, but some of, but they've also redone a lot of the art, and some of the art I've seen, I look at it and say, wow, that is not as good from a gameplay perspective as the art that was in the original game. And th- the game was actually um, published by iGames, a Hungarian game publisher, and then republished by Portal, a Polish game publisher, and now it's being published by um, a French publisher, uh, Leidelund, or Leibelund, and you know, being uh, distributed by Asmodee. And the new art is gorgeous looking, but I look at it, 
And I think it's kind of lost something from a gameplay perspective. There are fewer hooks, and just from the examples I've seen. So, while I strongly recommend everybody... Well, I mean... I don't know. I, I, we think it's great. We think it's a fantastic game. And, um, but you can watch my run through to see if you yourself would enjoy it. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm so happy that a lot of, a lot more people are going to be able to get it. But I do wonder if you aren't better off getting the Polish edition. But you know what? Any version of Mysterium is going to be a great game. And that's why it's my number five. Moving on to number four from Portal Games, Tides of Time at booth 2052. Now, this is a game, um, it's a, what do you call it, a uh, um, uh, Seven Wonders style, a card drafting game. It's another card drafting uh, game where you've got a hand of cards, you're going to pick one for yourself, and then give the rest to your next player, and they're going to give you a hand of cards, and you're going to keep on handing those cards back and forth. This is a gameplay mechanism Jen and I love, we love it in almost every game we ever encounter it. But the interesting thing about Tides of Time is it's a two-player only card drafting game. And now normally, card drafting games are at their best with more than two. But this is a card drafting game that's designed from the ground up to be played only with two players. And on top of that, it's practically a micro game because there aren't very many cards in the game. Um, So... Well, I haven't gotten a chance to play it yet. I have actually seen several full playthroughs, and it looks just brilliantly designed. It's like card... It's like... Seven Wonders pared down to just the bare essentials. Playable only for two players. And I suspect it's going to be a game that Jen and I immediately fall in love with when we eventually get to play it. And so that's why it ranks so high at number four on my list, Tides of Time. Okay, the top three. Moving on to number three, Viceroy. Being published at Gen Con by Mayday Games at booth 143. And now, I've had Viceroy since since. September of last year. I have the original Russian version. Hmitschek, I believe it's pronounced, or something similar to that. And I did a run-through for it a long time ago, and I raved and raved and raved about it. I think it made my top 10 of 2014, or maybe it was just shy. Maybe it was like number 11 or number 12. Uh, But it might have been in my top 10. Absolutely love it. Think it's an amazing game, and it is now finally available to a wider audience. It's getting its debut at Gen Con. What is it? It is a hand management game where you've got a whole bunch of cards, and you are playing these cards out to your own personal area, building a pyramid, building a base of cards that are next to each other, and then playing other cards on top of those to the second level of your pyramid and your third level of your pyramid. There's ultimately you can have up to five levels of this pyramid. And the thing is. Um, when you're building these cards, uh, they all have little quarter sections of a circle in their corner. So you're trying to build cards such that you are creating full circles, because that will give you bonus points at the end of the game. You're also trying to create, uh, create cards such that, depending on what level you place them at in the pyramid, they will give you different special abilities. And um, they will combo with each other in different ways. So basically, this game is, uh, you know, there's just a million different ways to use these cards. And every round, at the beginning of the round, you engage in this kind of auction where you use up the resources you need to play the cards to get new cards. Um, And then you try to build them to your pyramid so you can get more resources, you can get more cards. It's, It's a fairly abstract game. Basically, the pyramid you're building represents your pyramid of influence, your pyramid of power in this fantasy kingdom. And, you know, the higher up you put 
your the people you're trying to influence, the more they will do for you. So it does actually have a strong thematic basis, but really at its heart, it is just a tableau building game where um, the combinational the combinatorial possibilities of these cards is infinite. And Jen and I, we fell in love with it the first time we played it. This was one of those games where we're just halfway through the game, we're saying, oh my god, this is so clever. Oh my god, this is so smart. Oh my god, oh my god. And we just, it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely love it. That's why it makes number three, Viceroy. Okay, number two, Queen's Architect from Queen Games at booth 1517. I've already done a run-through for this. I actually backed this game on Kickstarter because I was really excited about it. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about it. It's a brilliant, brilliant game. Probably one of the most clever mechanical games, Euro-style games, since, what do you call it? Um, uh, Zulk in the Mind Calendar. It has a very similar feel. In Zulk in the Mind Calendar, there's a central board where there's all these gears that are constantly in motion. And as the gears move, that gives you more and more options for what your workers are going to do in the world. And you're constantly trying to anticipate where the gears are going to move your workers. In um, King Queen's Architect, those gears are the workers themselves. The, the workers are constantly, every time you use them to build something, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build stuff in this game so we can become the Queen's Architect. All our workers rotate clockwise. And so much of the game is about timing, trying to manipulate your workers so that when they do work, they'll all produce masterworks. But the problem is your workers are never in sync. And if I were to build this particular round, this guy would do a good job, my, you know, my, my brick layer, but my glass blower would do a terrible job. So maybe I should spend some time before I do the big job sending my glass worker to the um, pub so she can rest, so I can rotate her counterclockwise. And so much of the game is about how Hiring and manipulating these artisans, trying to get them to work well together. And it's just a brilliant, wonderful puzzle. Absolutely adore it. Um, probably going to make my top 10 of 2015 at this point. It's um, one of the best games I've played so far this year. And I can't recommend it enough. It's getting its full debut at Gen Con. So definitely check it out. Um, or check out my run-through. Because uh, Jen and I, we adore it. Queen's Architect. And finally... The number one. And once again, it's another game that, hey, I've had since Essen last year because it got a fairly small print run last year. But now, this year, thanks to Stronghold Games at booth 2329, Lagranha is widely available for the first time. And oh my god, it was my number two game of 2014. And it's still fantastic. Every time Jen and I get a chance to play it, we are once again in awe of how brilliantly it is designed. It is a farming simulation where, oh gosh, you know what? It, there's too much to explain. Watch my run through for it if you want to know more. All I got to say is, um, well, first of all, even if I didn't have it, it would have made my top 10 because the gameplay mechanisms, there's so many. It's, it's a, a Feld style point salad game because there's so many different things you can do so many different paths to victory so many and and at its heart the thing that drives the whole game is as i was talking about earlier like uh, glory to rome it is one of those games where you have a handful of cards and you can use those cards in many different ways the cards in your hand can be can represent 
employees you can hire on your farm that give you special game-breaking abilities. Or the cards can represent fields where you can start growing grapes and wheat. Or they represent um, pens where you can start growing hogs and breeding hogs. Or they represent money-making opportunities so you can start getting more money every turn. Or they represent contracts you can make at the local town so that the produce you're producing in your farmland will actually have a place to sell and turn in. And every time you play one of these cards for one of those abilities, you give up the other three. And that is such a heartbreaking decision. It never gets easy. It is always a tough, challenging, brilliantly designed puzzle. Absolutely love Legrandha. Cannot wait for people to be able to get their hands on it because it's been a very hard game to get for a very long time now. And that is it, folks. That is my number one game of Gen Con 2014, if I didn't already own it. So the games I don't actually own... I guess my number one is really my number four, Tides of Time. And then my number two would be Artifact, Inc. My number three would be uh, Motainai. My number four would be Spirits of the Rice Paddy. My number five would be Isle of Sky. But, um, like I said, right from the get-go, I was trying to treat all of these games as as if I didn't have any of them. And how would I personally rank them? And now you know. And knowing is half the battle. And I don't know if you can tell, my throat is getting very froggy again. So I think it's time to take another break, folks. And then I will be back with the other list. Oh my God, that is just as long, almost as long as this one. The other list, in case you forgot, what games are available at Gen Con to demo but not to buy? And what priority would I have? What would be my least likely to demo and my most likely to demo? Hold on, folks. We'll be back in a minute, and I'll let you know. Okay, everybody. If you are, in fact, still here, welcome back. I can't believe you made it all the way through that. Um, And now... Somehow, you have the mental fortitude to be able to make it through this. I don't know. Are are, are you actually being tortured? Are you being held against your will and somebody's forcing you to listen to this? I can't imagine any other reason anybody would have made it this far. But in case you did, let's get back to it. So, I just checked. I have a list of 30 games that are at Gen Con that you cannot buy, but that you will be able to try. And um, in all honesty, if I were going to Gen Con this year, this would almost be more exciting to me, this list, than the games I could buy. Because often, in many cases, a lot of these games, you won't be able to buy them for like another year. So getting to play them really early, I always find that to be a blast. Plus, whenever I get to play a game with the original designer, which is often the case when you're at Gen Con because it's the designer himself demoing it, uh, I always find that to be really edifying and educational as well because it's just a blast to sit down and talk to them about why they chose what they did and you can get a a much more in-depth look at a game. So um, you know, it's absolutely phenomenal. I'm very jealous of everybody who gets to go to Gen Con this year and gets to play these various games. Now, that said, once again, some of the games, to be fair, I probably wouldn't personally go out and play because I've already played them. But again, I am making this list as if I have never played any of these 30 games. And so I just tried to evaluate them and rank them based on what my personal excitement level would be under those circumstances. And so, without further ado, let's go. Number 30, Poseidon's Kingdom from Game Salute at booth 1301. 
I have to admit, I have backed this on Kickstarter. I have been waiting for this forever. When Poseidon's Kingdom was first available at, at Essen, XDY years ago, and there were only going to be 200 copies of it, and I tried to pre-order it, and I was like number 210, or whatever the number was. It was like 500 copies, 1,000 copies. I just missed it by like a half an hour, and I have been kicking myself ever since, because this game looks lovely. The gimmick of it... And I say that, you know, up front without any hesitation. It definitely seems like a gimmick, but it looks like a fun one is it's a dice rolling game where the board itself is a gigantic wave. At the beginning of a round, you put a whole bunch of dice on top of this wave, which is kind of like a seesaw teeter-totter thing, and then you dip the wave. You tilt it so that the wave crashes onto the beach and all the dice just go flying everywhere. And wherever they end up, that ends up determining what we as players will be able to do that round. And it just looks so cool. I, you know, I live across the street from, uh, from a beach where our favorite thing about living here in Malta is watching the, ra- the waves crash in on a really windy day. So I love an entire game built around that. And I've been waiting forever. And uh, I believe that they'll have some demo copies of it at, at uh, Gen Con. Um, I don't it won't be available to buy yet, but if I were there, oh, would I, I've been waiting years to play this game. Would I wait a little longer? You know what? In all honesty, I probably would because I've already bought the game, so that's why this is fairly low. But if I hadn't already bought the game and I'd been thinking about it, I'd probably rank this quite a bit higher. But anyway, I'm just very excited about Poseidon's Kingdom, and I'm very happy Game Salute is publishing it, and um, finally I'll be able to get my copy. So anyway, that was number 30. Number 29, from Fantasy Flight which is a rare thing for me, um, getting excited about anything from Fantasy Flight, Fury of Dracula. Fantasy Flight, booth 809. Now, I actually owned Fury of Dracula, the second edition that, you know, has been out of print forever and, you know, commands really huge prices. And Jen, I loved the idea of it. Jen never let me be Dracula. She would always play Dracula. I'd always have to play the Hunters. I did a run-through for it a while ago, and oh my God, that was one of the hardest run-throughs I ever did because the game... As much as we love the core idea of vampire hunters chasing Dracula all over Europe while Dracula pursues his own secret agenda, and um, the, everybody has special powers, uh, you know, hidden movement, all this stuff, brilliant design, but so overwrought, so Ameritrashy, so full of a billion and one stupid little rules, it just was way too unwieldy, and I eventually sold it for a, for a penny pretty, a, a, a pretty penny. I was very happy now knowing now that it's, that it's getting reprinted, so the bottom is going to fall out. I'm glad I sold when I did. The reason I have it here, the reason I might consider getting a demo of it, and I would definitely, if I was there, I would definitely swing by just to look at it, is because not only is it a reprint, but they have said that they have simplified and streamlined it. And it was the lack of streamlining that got me to get rid of the game in the first place. So, I am cautiously optimistic and would like to know more about my number 29, maybe even play a demo of it, Fury of Dracula. Number 28, Castles of Mad King Ludwig Secrets. This is an expansion to a game I already love. In all honesty, I probably would not bother with a demo, um, because I know I'm just going to buy it. When it is eventually available at Essen this year, I'm going to buy it. There's just no two ways about it. There's, There's absolutely no doubt. So while I'm excited about it, Actually, I probably should have put it even lower. I probably should have put it at 30. But still, I'm ex- don't get me wrong. I'm super stoked about the expansion. It is a thing you can demo at the show. Maybe if I had some time to kill, I'd do it. But I can wait because it's, it's going to be bought sight unseen. But anyway, 
Moving on to number 27, Castle Panic, Dark Titan. And now this is one I probably would want to play. Castle Panic, the original Castle Panic, I love the idea of it, but it's semi-cooperative nature, which Jen and I are not interested in, so we only play it fully cooperatively, makes the game so easy that we've never been able to have fun with it. It's just a little bit too dull and boring. But as they add more and more expansions to it, and make the game more challenging, I get more and more excited about Castle Panic. So, I am excited about whatever the new expansion, Dark Titan, has to offer, including the Dark Titan, the big boss himself. So, this is definitely one that I would swing by and certainly talk about and try to find out what's new. And, you know, I mean, uh, Castle Panic is not a particularly long game. Maybe I would actually play a full demo of it. I'd certainly consider it. Moving on to number 26. Um... Oops, I'm sorry. Uh, number 27, Castle Panic, Dark Titan, was from Fireside Games at booth 1949. Okay, number 26, uh, Tumult Royale. Tumult, uh, Tumult Royal from Cosmos Games at 3039, booth 3039. And first of all, can I just say how awesome it is to actually even acknowledge the fact that Cosmos has a booth at Gen Con? I have been ranting for years about how Cosmos, who make... Some amazing games. How uh, how much has broken my heart that they do not um, publish games in English. That, that for the most part, they just keep all their stuff in German. Like great, wonderful games like Helvetia and oh, where are my Cosmos games? I'm looking on my wall. Um, you know, uh, uh, Legends of Andor, and why can't I find them? Well, there's a whole bunch of them. And I've got them all right next to each other on my wall somewhere. Oh, there, okay. Uh, Nauticus, uh, Kashgar, uh, Handler der Sinstrasse. Wonderful, wonderful games. But they only ever publish them in German. Because they just have never really seemed to care that much about, you know, because Cosmos, interestingly, is a ginormous company. Board games is only one small part of what they do. So they've just never bothered to publish them in anything other than German because they didn't care much. But, they're at Gen Con now. That's got to signal some kind of fundamental change that they've realized, hey, you know what? There's a lot of people who would out there in English-speaking countries who would like to play our games. Let's have a booth at Gen Con. And so they do. And so, actually, number 26 and number 25, both of them I would probably like to swing by and take a look at. They're both at Cosmos, Tumult Royale, and Steam Time. And as for the games themselves, honestly, I don't know much about what they're about because there's very little information about them. Because Cosmos, well, two steps, you know, baby steps, right? I mean, hey, they're there. And even if they're not really doing much to actually kind of hype up the games, I would just go there, if nothing else, to support their baby steps into the wider world of English published games. But the games themselves do actually sound pretty cool. Tumult Royale, number 26, is apparently a real-time dice rolling game from um, the designer of Klaus Teuber of, uh, of Catan, and I believe he co-designed it with his son, if I recall correctly. So that's interesting. And uh, what was the other one? Number 25, Steam Time, also from Cosmos, is designed by Rudiger Dorn. And, you know, he's obviously one of the royalty of, you know, from Goa, and, you know, he's done so many really, really well-respected Euros. So, I, both of these, I would definitely want to swing by, I would want to talk, I, I, I would just, even if I don't demo them, I just want to talk about, hey, so what does this mean? Is Cosmos doing everything in English now? Yay! So anyway, that's pretty cool for my 26 and 25. Tumult Royale and, uh, or Royal, and Steam Time. Uh, number 24. 
Looting Atlantis from Shoot Again Games, uh, booth 2827. This is a game that I guess is going to be going on Kickstarter sometime in the next couple of months. And i got to say, it looks pretty cool. Uh, it's basically... There have been a few games that have used this whole... There's a volcano in the center of the board, and lava is spreading from it every turn, and we're trying to get away from the lava. You know, um, the Pompeii game, and uh, uh, Manuakea, which came out a couple of years ago. So it's, it's, a, it's an idea that's been done before, and they're doing it again now. It's the volcano that's erupting in the center. It's going to make all of Atlantis sink. But before Atlantis sinks, we want to loot Atlantis, which is um, you know, some kind of high-tech futuristic city back in you know, the ancient... Pale- um, in ancient times. And so we are zipping around and um, you know, trying to grab all these wonderful high-tech inventions and trying to stay one step ahead of the lava as it spreads and starts destroying all this stuff. And um, it, it just sounds really, really cool. It, I mean, I, I like the theme. I, I like the core mechanism. And, uh, you know, and, and every time you set it up, there's an explosion, a riot of cards that are on. So I think there's going to be a lot of replayability with this game, too. So I'm really excited about it. It would definitely be one I would consider trying to get a demo of. Number 24, Looting Atlantis. Now, on to number 23, uh, Dark Rock Ventures from Gameland Games. And um, this, to be fair, I've actually done a run-through for. So I've, I, I, I've already had a demo of it. But here's the reason why, if I hadn't, I would be interested and I would seek out a demo for it at whatever number I just said it was. Uh, Gameland Games. What did I say it was? Uh, Gameland Games, Dark Rock Ventures. Oh, interestingly, and Gameland Games won't have a booth. So if you want to try to get a demo of Dark Rock Ventures, you have to send a tweet to Magic Meeple, at Magic Meeple, and contact them and see if you can arrange a demo. Because they're there demoing it, but they, they're just going to be doing a kind of ad hoc with people who schedule time with them. And so... The reason I would be excited about doing this is that Dark Rock Ventures is an outer space mining simulation game where we roll dice and the dice represent our mining rigs. The thing that's interesting about this game is, like most dice rolling worker placement games, you have a lot of ways that you can mitigate the luck of the dice. But usually in most of these dice games, you roll your dice and then you try to mitigate them. In this game, you have to commit you know, and you roll your dice and then you see, well, what can I do? Well, maybe I'll try to change it this way or I'll change it that way or whatever I'll do. In this game, you have to commit to how you're going to mitigate your dice rolls before you roll. And that is a very cool and interesting twist on the dice worker placement. That's why I got excited about the game in the first place and why I ultimately did do a run-through of the prototype. And that's why I'd be interested in it. And then the other reason I'd be interested in it is because it's um, being published by Gameland Games. And quite frankly, they have a fantastic track record. They have very good taste. And so anytime the Gameland Games name is on a game, I am interested. And so that is why I would probably seek out a, uh, a playthrough, a demo of Dark Rock Ventures. But to do it, I'd have to contact them on Twitter at Magic Meeple. Okay, number 22. Another dice game. Favor of the Pharaoh from Bezier Games at 2617. Now, this is actually interesting. It is a reprint of a game that, uh, a dice game that came out quite a while ago. Oh, what is the name of it? I got to look it up. I've actually played the original. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Favor of the Pharaoh. There. Oh, here we go. Oh, I should have opened this up. Um, Oh. But basically, it's a, it's a dice rolling game, and the, the, this previous game is one of 
the earlier game, dice rolling games, where you, you roll, you re-roll. Oh yeah, from Thomas Lehman. Uh, um, you know, and so it's been around forever. What is it? A remark of? Oh, you don't even say, Eric Martin, how could you not say what this is a reprint of? Okay, now i got to go to the original um, game page to look it up. Ah, the, the geek list has failed me. To court the king! Okay, thank you. Ah! So years ago, Thomas Lehman uh, put out a dice-rolling game to court the king. And for its time, it was way ahead of the curve. It was very innovative, and ever since then, I mean, I think a lot of, you know, nowadays, it's very, very common to see all of these, you know, Yahtzee-inspired games. But, I mean, you know, To Court the King was one of the first ones from Tom Lehman. Tom Lehman, by the way, the, you know, designer of Race for the Galaxy. So, a very, very well-respected designer. He is finally, and it's been out of print forever, and he's finally revisiting. It's been rethemed to not be like uh, the king of, uh, the court of King Louis, but instead to be, you know, ancient Egyptian pharaoh stuff. And... It's really kind of like a 2.0 of that version because he's revisited it, he's streamlined it, he's cleaned it up a bit. And so this is definitely one that I would like to try because I like to court the king, but at the time I played it, I thought, well, you know what? There's a lot of games that do this whole Yahtzee-inspired dice re-rolling, 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 build a dice engine game. There's games that do it a lot better. And, you know, but that wasn't fair because, like I said, Court the King was one of the first ones. But now, the original designer, one of the best designers out there, is revisiting. He's going to be tweaking it. So I would love to see how he has evolved that, you know, that early design. Okay, so that was Favor of the Pharaoh. Moving on to number, um, which was from Bezier at 2617. Number 21, Trickerian from Mind Clash Games, booth 1537. <coughs> oh, my goodness. Sorry, folks. So, Trickerian, I have done a full run-through for you, so you can learn more about it. It is a very, it is a huge, um, rollicking, sprawling, Euro-style worker placement game all about Victorian-era magicians trying to prepare um, all the tricks of their trades, all the, the stagecraft, the, the assistance, everything they have to do to get ready to put on the perfect show and score a lot of victory points. That core gameplay th um, theme is brilliant. Absolutely lovely. And the gameplay itself is rock solid. Now, if you just take one look at the board, you're going to fall in love. It's just brilliant. It's a gigantic board. The art is absolutely lovely. It just draws you in to this world. It makes you feel like you're playing Prestige, the board game, if you remember the Christopher Nolan film. And it's just um, you know, absolutely rock solid. And then on top of that, the gameplay itself is very, very good. I would want to try the gameplay, even if I hadn't already tried it, because I have done a run-through for the prototype when the game was on Kickstarter. But um, So I already know the game is really, really good. But I would... Actually, you know what? If I were Gen Con, I would probably seek it out, because I'd want to talk to him anyway, because I played a very early rough prototype, and I suspect the game has gone through some additional play-tuning, refining, and whatnot, and I'd love to hear what's new as well. So anyway, that's my number 21, Trickerian. Very, very cool game. Number 20... The Networks, from um, uh, Formal Ferret Games, 2827, uh, booth 2827, <coughs> which is the Indie Games Alliance booth. Oh, and you can, apparently you can also find it at the first Exposure Playtest Hall. 
Now, this is from uh, Gil Hova, who did Battle Merchants. And I have not played Battle Merchants, but I have it on good authority that Battle Merchants is a very, very clever, original, Euro-style economic simulation where players are Battle Merchants trying to um, basically profit off of this war in a fantasy kingdom where the elves were fighting the orcs or fighting the goblins or whatever it was. I've never played it, but I've heard really, really good things. And now Gil is basically bringing a prototype of his new game, The Networks, and I would love to try that too, mostly because I've heard so many good things about Battle Merchants. Now, I love the theme. And it's actually interesting. This is one of a few different games that are coming out this year and next year that share this theme of players being television network executives trying to create the perfect lineup of TV shows so they can get the most viewers. And so I love the theme because I'm a TV junkie. And so I love the idea of being able to green light shows and um, you know try to get the right stars and the right directors and the right script and the right advertising onto the correct night so I can have you know you know the best ratings. I, I love that theme and I love the fact that there's these different games that are doing it in very very different ways. So I would definitely see if I could get a uh, a demo of this. Plus, you know, it's going to be a fairly um, Oh, what do you call it? It's going to be one of those demos, again, with the designer. Um, you know, it's not just going to be with somebody who's been trained to do it. So you'll get a lot of insight into it. I mean, it, I mean, I always love doing that. So it's a blast whenever you get a chance. So it might be something you'd want to sync out. It would definitely would be, um, I would definitely try to make this happen if I were at Gen Con. That was number 20, the networks. Now, on to number 19, Shadow Over Westminster from Cl- Counter Clockwork Games in Hall E. Okay, and now this is a deck builder. It is a cooperative deck builder, and it's uh, basically set in modern-day London, and there's some kind of supernatural cataclysmic event that's going to destroy the world. And players um, each have a deck of cards that represents what they're able to do as they investigate and try to stop whatever the big problem is. And you know, over the course of the game, they travel around London, which is instantly attractive to us because Jen and I love London. It's my favorite city in the world. No, no, it's Jen's favorite city in the world. It's my second favorite. My favorite is still Seattle. And so we love the notion of traveling around London, all you know the the well-known haunts. And um, we love deck builders. And uh, you know, we've seen in other games the the notion of a deck builder where the deck is my character and it gets more powerful over the course of the game. We know that works. We love cooperative games. And the thing that really catches my ear about this game is this is a deck deck builder where the cards have different backs. It, it, so when you're drawing cards, you can see that, hey, maybe I've got a special card and it's the only card I've taken from that. I can see I'm going to draw that card. So you get a little bit more control over, you know, like advanced knowledge about what your deck is going to give you because different cards have different backs. I actually think that's really brilliant. I love that idea a lot. So I would be very excited to try out Shadow Over Westminster. All right, that was number 19. Then number 18 is another deck builder. Uh, You can see it at Mr. B Games, which is 2330, booth 2330. It's Extraordinary Voyages. And now in this game, our deck represents us as a worldwide explorer in a Jules Verne universe where um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, sea, um, Journey to the Center of the Earth, and... 
um, around the world in 80 days, all three of those stories exist simultaneously. And as players, we are explorers trying to compete in all three of those competitions. Trying to make it around on a hot air balloon in 80 days. Trying to get 20,000 leagues under the sea and trying to get to the center of the earth. And we use our deck to do it. And um, you know, we make our deck stronger. It lets us travel farther. And it's a race game. And I just got to say... I love this theme. I love the whole Jules Verne mishmash, all of these things happening at the same time. Absolutely fantastic. Cannot wait to learn more about Extraordinary Voyages. Sounds like it'd be a blast to try and demo that one. Moving on to number 17 from Asmati Games. Actually, number 17 and number 16 are both from Asmati Games at booth 549. Number 17 is Consequential, and number 16 is 1001 Odysseys. Now, <clears throat> the reason I'm interested in both of these is because they are both examples of games that are trying to push forward the board game genre by introducing digital components. With both of these games, you um you know it, it's 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 a cardboard game. Uh, consequential or yeah, consequential is a cooperative game, which is co-designed by Carl Chuddock um, and Chris Isaac. I believe that's how you say your name, Chris. And uh, actually, I got to play a demo of it last year, and I thought it was actually a very, very clever, interesting um, co-op. But what's interesting about it is there is an ev evolving story where you uh, basically it's, it's a time travel, parallel universes, parallel worlds colliding kind of game. And um, the, the central board is a wheel of time as we're trying to move around the wheel and face challenges that are on it and you know gather the resources and trade them and share them with each other so we can stop all the events. But the interesting thing is this central wheel is kind of an abstract gameplay mechanism that could tell many different stories. And the game tells a campaign over many different sessions. And every time you play the game, depending on what you do in a given, how, how you compete in Mission 3, you're going to move on to Mission 4. And Mission 4 is going to be taught to you. The new rules for whatever changes, whatever changes with the central board, is taught to you through a digital app that does storytelling, that tells you the next chapter of your story and tells you, right, here's how the rules change now because of what happened in the last. And I just think that's absolutely fantastic. The gameplay is I, I got to play it last year, and the core game was pretty nice. But what I didn't get to see was much of how the digital integration works. This year, I would definitely want to check it out again, because now it's presumably got a lot of the digital working, and I'd like to know more. So that is consequential. And then the other one from Asmati, 1001 Odysseys, is a game, a storytelling game. Much like, what's it called? Agents of Smirsh, or Tales of Arabian Nights. Or um, above and below, which uh, actually that's a spoiler. I'll come back to that. And um, but instead of the game coming with a big gigantic book and having some kind of lookup system, where okay, I have to look up page twenty nine, entry C, subparagraph three. All right, what's the paragraph, and then read it to everybody. This game comes with an app that automates all that lookup stuff for you, so you still read stories to each other. It doesn't replace that because that's one of the most wonderful things about these games is reading stories and, and watching this story evolve. But I love the notion, and, I, and I've always wanted it for her um, for these other games of an app that just streamlines and simplifies all that lookup table stuff. So I'm very very excited to see how 1001 Odysseys works for that reason. 
So that was number 17 and 16. 15, number 15, Storm Hollow from Escapade Games at booth 1301. Now, this game is kind of notorious. It actually had a Kickstarter campaign, I think, a couple of years ago. And it's kind of languished ever since. The developers were kind of newbies, and they underestimated how long it was going to take to make everything. And so it's taken a long time. But they are now actually planning on having it demoable because they're getting very, very close to shipping. And so I was always interested. I almost backed it. I came really close. The only reason I didn't was because shipping was crazy expensive, and so I backed away. But I've always been interested in it because what it looks like is trying to capture the feel of a pen and paper RPG, fantasy RPG, but bringing lots of board game conceits into it to really streamline the gameplay and potentially make a pen and paper RPG that which is all about well, you know, much more about leveraging your imagination and storytelling than it is about, you know, moving on a grid and rolling D20s to see how much you attack. I mean, it has that kind of stuff too, but that's really beside the point. It's about the storytelling and the creative problem solving and working together. But it is a game that seems to be well designed that it might work well with too. And that's always been the promise that's made me excited about Storm Hollow. I would love to do a demo of it. And more importantly, I'd love to do a two-player demo of it. I'd love to see if it lives up to its potential. So that was number 15. Number 14, Snow Tales from Renegade Game Studios, uh, 3029, booth 3029. And this is actually a the third reprint. Snow Tales got printed years and years ago, and then I think it got reprinted, then it got reprinted again as Mush Mush. And so maybe it's the fourth reprinting of this now. And I've always been interested in this game, and I, have, and I suspect Jen and I would love it. It's a race game where you are racing dog sleds. And the uh, interesting thing is, the way you control the dog sled is, you know, you've got um, your dogs on the left and your dogs on the right. If you want to go left, you have to, um, what? If you want to go left, you have to get the dogs on the left to slow down so the dogs on the right go faster and push you left as you try to go around corners. And I just love the conceit of that. It's, um, you know, the the... The logistics of trying to handle this dog, this team of dogs, as you're trying to, you know, carry them around corners and and you know come out in the lead. You know, Jen and I, we love dogs. I mean, we just love everything about it. I've always wanted to give this game a try. I've never been sure enough about buying it, but man, I would love to try it. And so that's why it's on my list. Number fourteen. Number thirteen is. Um, I think I'm going to stop right there because I am completely stuffed up. I can barely breathe. I've got 13 left to go, folks. So we're very, very close to the end. But we're going to take a break here so I can go blow my schnoz and maybe clear out my pipes a little bit more. The end is in sight. Stick with me, folks. I'll be right back. Okay, folks, we're in the final stretch. 13 more to go. I think I can do it. I think I can do it. Oh, man, when I just got up to go blow my nose, I, I'm dizzy. My head is spinning like a whirlpool. It never ends. And it's you, List, making me spin. Okay, so number 13, Attack on Titan from Cryptozoic, booth 601. Now, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with it, but this is apparently based on a mega hugely popular anime series and manga comic series called Attack on Titan, which is set in, you know, one of these anime-style alternate worlds, you know, around the time of World War I, at least it looks like, or maybe like the Napoleonic Wars, sometime around like that time, where giant titans wander the world and just walk around and eat people. 
And uh, so mankind is fighting back, trying to stay alive. They've erected a gigantic wall, like something straight out of Game of Thrones. And in this game, in a, a version of this, again, hugely popular uh, world, uh, anime world, players are, well, one player is the Titan running around trying to eat everybody. And the other players are Titan hunters, I guess, who are trying to take the Titan down. And uh, what's interesting about the game is the board is vertical. The board is the Titan. And it stands with like a bunch of different little platforms. All up. And so players, the, the hunter players, are actually traveling up and down the body of the Titan trying to, I don't know, find its weak spots, I guess, to do damage to it and take it down. While, of course, the Titan is trying to swat them off and eat them, I suppose. So, I gotta say, that just sounds very, very cool. Um, you know, if nothing else, just in terms of impact on the table. But if that wasn't enough, this is not just some, um, you know, I, I talked about that a few hours ago, you know, the notion of some hastily thrown together licensing tie-in money grab. I don't think that's the case with this because Cryptozoic has gotten, um, Antoine Bauza and Ludovic Malblanc to work together as co-designers to design this thing. And that, in case you don't know, is a big, that's a, that's, those are some heavy hitters, um, you know, brought to bear to make this little, uh, you know, money cash tie-in game. Um, and, you know, I mean, the last time they worked together, they did Rampage or Terror in Meeple City, which is an excellent, excellent game. Jen, I absolutely love it. Of course, Antoine Bowser has done a ton of really awesome games, Seven Wonders and, um, you know, Ghost Stories and all that, as has uh, Ludovic Malblanc. I mean, they both have incredible designer pedigrees, and they're working together on this licensing tie-in game, which already has a really cool concept of the board being vertical and um, you know representing one player as the other players crawl all over. kind of sounds like Shadows of the Colossus, if you ever played that old, excellent, awesome PlayStation 2 game from Sony. Ah, it just seems really, really cool. And I would definitely, if I were a Gen Con, seek it out and try to learn more and maybe see if I could get in a game. Because that just sounds cool on a lot of different levels. All right, so that was number 13, Attack on Titan from Cryptozoic in Booth 601. Number 12 is Ninja Camp from Action Phase Games, Booth 335. And I got to say... I really, well, first of all, I have done a run through for this. So again, you have to, I, I ranked this here if I were pretending, well, if I hadn't played it, how would I rank this? Would I even want to play it? And I ranked it pretty high because I think this is a game I would definitely be interested in playing just because, well, one, because the art is phenomenal. I absolutely love it. It has a very sweet, wonderful, cartoony vibe. Just looks absolutely great. And, um, you know, in this game, players are a bunch of ninja apprentices at Ninja Summer Camp or Ninja Camp trying to learn all kinds of, you know, the coolest moves, the coolest ninja moves so they can become the new master apprentice. Um, which is a, a cool, fun um, theme, certainly. But the gameplay itself is basically a kind of upgraded version of Hey, That's My Fish. Which I have to admit, I never played Hey, That's My Fish. I've always looked at it and I realize it's very, very popular, but I've always looked at it and said, Well, yeah, okay, that looks kind of nice, but kind of simple. Um, but this takes that same basic notion of everybody's playing on this same this central board and moving from one place to another and picking up the the space they left from 
and, um, and that creates a gap in the board. And over time, the board becomes more broken up with more and more gaps, and it gets harder and harder to move around. But it takes that same basic notion, but really takes it to an 11. Because all the core, um, you know, that, that core, that core gameplay idea, and hey, that's my fish, which is a cute, sweet little family friendly gateway, has now been, you know, escalated because the cards you pick up give you special, cool, unique ways you can move. Every turn, when you're gonna move, you have a few cards in your hand, and they tell you whether you're gonna leap, or whether you're gonna sprint, or whether you're gonna shadow somebody, or whatever ninja move you're gonna do, and that's gonna determine how you move around the board. And when you move, the card you have left becomes a new card that's in your hand that you'll be able to use in a subsequent turn. So, there is a lot going on in this game. You're constantly trying to move and thinking, anticipating how the board is going to break up because um, you want to stay on the board as long as possible because every card you take gives you more points. But you're also trying to move into spots so you can get specific, unique powers that you want to be able to do, so that'll give you more flexibility and freedom to move around. Plus, everybody is there is a unique animal, like a chameleon or a, a flying squirrel or a hamster or whatnot, and everybody has their own special one-time power they can use as well. So, um, you know, between the unique powers you're picking up as you move around and your own special power, every time you play, it's going to be a very, very different experience as you try to leverage these powers. And now, hey, that's my Fish has been around for quite a while. It's very popular. It's very well loved. And so taking that the, the basic super simple game and adding all these extra elements to it is very, very attractive to me. And so that's why I would be seeking out a demo of it, even if I hadn't already played it. Although as it happens, I have played it, and Jen, I liked it quite a bit. So that was number 12, Ninja Camp. Now moving on to number 11. Spirit Island from Greater Than Games, booth 2143. Now, in this game, this is a cooperative game where there are invaders invading some island and spreading blight and all kinds of terrible stuff. And in this game, the island is sentient and is protecting itself. And I just got to say, as a huge Lost fan, and don't even get me started, um, anybody who wants to bag on Lost, how, you know, no, believe me, I... I'd have to spend hours with you explaining how... Well, anyway, I'm pro-Lost. Long story short. Everything about Lost is awesome. And so I'm immediately drawn to this, you know, the, the whole notion of this mysterious island that has sentience. And players, it's a cooperative game where we collectively represent the island, which has sort of mystical powers that it's trying to use to marshal its forces. And also to, you know, inspire the people inhabiting the island to protect itself and push off the invaders. I mean, that is straight out of the backstory of Lost, and I absolutely love it. And then on top of that, the art for this game looks absolutely absolutely gobsmacking gorgeous. So between those two things, I have been very interested for a long time in Spirit Island, and I would love to give it a try. Okay, number 10, Fuse from Renegade Game Studios, um, booth 3029. <clears throat> this is a real-time cooperative game of bomb defusal, which is interesting. I did a, a run-through for that same basic topic, uh, Bomb Diffusal Real-Time Cooperative Game last year. That was Bomb Squad from Tasty Minstrel Games, and really loved it. This is the same basic idea, but radically different gameplay. This is a dice game where every round um, we, we have to defuse a bomb. 
right? And what we do is at the beginning of the timed phase, we roll a bunch of dice. And that becomes a, whatever we end up rolling becomes a dice pool that we start pulling dice from to do all the stuff we need to do to fuse our bombs. You know, cut green wires and red wires and, and, and whatever they all are. But it's a common pool. And maybe we both need that red wire die. And so in real time, working against the clock, we have to coordinate and negotiate and figure out, right, is it more important that I cut my red wire or you cut your red wire and solve the puzzle? And I just got to say, I love this com- this notion of a real-time game where, you know, we lo- Jen and I, we love Escape Curse of the Temple and, um, you know, Zombie 50. I mean, we love these real-time dice rolling games where you have a certain amount of time and you're rolling the dice as fast as you can um, to try to get the faces you need. This is a different take on that where you just have, you just roll the dice once and then in real time you try to solve the puzzle. I think that is a brilliant gameplay mechanism and um, I could see it being used in lots of different scenarios. So I, you know, in, in much the same way that, you know, Escape is now kind of gone on and, you know, I'll be like, so I think it's a cool idea. I cannot wait to see more. It's definitely something I would like to give a try, you know, particularly because it's a real-time game. So if you really want to get the feel for it, you need to play it. Plus, it won't take very long. So um, it definitely rates very, very high on my want-to-demo list at number 10, Fuse from Renegade Game Studios. Okay, number nine, Odyssey, Wrath of Poseidon from Ares Games at booth 449. Okay, now this is a very interesting game where one player is Poseidon, the god of the seas, and the other players all are controlling their own ships trying to find their way back home. And in this game, the Poseidon player is a wrathful and vengeful god who wants all these ships to sink. And, and the other players are all just trying to make it back home. And I love the core conceit of how this game works because it's almost like... It's, you know, at first glance, it almost looks like a new next-gen version of Battleship because the Poseidon player is on one side of the wall and he can see a grid of the ocean and he can see where all the ships are. And what he does on his turn is he manipulates the ships and moves them, you know, just one space, you know, here or there. And so, Poseidon is the only person who knows where the ships really are. And, you know, the purple ship's trying to get to the purple island or whatever, but, you know, has to make sure they doesn't get caught on the rocks or smashes into another ship or whatever. But only Poseidon... See, on the other side of the wall, there's the same map that shows the ships. And all the players are looking at this map, and they think they know where they are. But they know Poseidon has messed with them and has moved them. And so they can't be exactly certain where they are. And so they have to start kind of tentatively moving around and saying, right, okay, from where I am, do I see anything to the north of me? And then Poseidon has to say, well... No, there's not. And so they think, okay, it's fine. Okay, I'll, I'll move. But you know, but the thing is, um, they don't have much time, and they're all racing to try to get back. And I mean, I, let's see. Now, I, I should say, I don't know exactly how the game works. This is kind of my understanding of how it works. That Poseidon has perfect information and is messing with stuff and trying. What he's trying to do is manipulate the boats so that when the human, when the when the captains try to find out where they are, 
they can get a false positive and they can think, oh, well, okay, yeah, there's, a, there's an island to the north of me. Okay, I know where I am because there's an island. In fact, well, the way he manipulated you, it's a different island. It's a different island and you don't know. So then you just merrily go on your way and next thing you know, you smash into something because Poseidon tricked you by um, you know, using the stormy seas to make you lose track of where you were. I just think this game sounds so brilliant. I, I really want to give it a try. And, um, and I think Jen and I, it's going to be something Jen and I enjoy quite a bit. Um, I just, I love everything about it. It just sounds so cool. And that is, uh, um, Odyssey Wrath of Poseidon. Okay. Number eight is Mistfall from NSKN Games, booth. 1753. And now, this is another one I've already done a run-through for. Wow, my voice is really starting to go. So I've already done a run-through for it. You can see what it is, but it's another game that would have ranked high if I hadn't already gotten a chance to play it, because it is a cooperative game where, um, you know... Well, how to describe it? Um, well, it's a, it's a fantasy cooperative game where we're all working together. We all have a deck of cards that represents our unique fantasy archetype character, whether it's a thief or a hunter or a, a warrior or a cleric or whatever it might be. And um, the crux of the gameplay is all about really potentially hugely complex card combos that we are doing cooperatively to try to fight bad guys who are all driven by their own fairly complex AI that is unique from bad guy to bad guy. Um, I actually played an early version of the game um, many, many years called Songs of Artha. I played it at Essen, and I was immediately very, very impressed by it. And, um, you know, it took a few years, but the designer eventually um, transferred it from publisher to publisher, changed name, but a lot of the same core ideas are there. And so I had been very excited about it ever since I played the demo years ago at Essen. So if I were at Gen Con, I definitely want to be playing it because it's... A very rich game, very, very deep, and it also features, apparently, a campaign mode where you can play through adventure after adventure after adventure, and your deck of card grows and evolves over time, and I absolutely love that too. It's the thing that I love so much about Pathfinder, the adventure card game, but Pathfinder, the adventure card game, was a really simple dice chucker, whereas Mistfall is a very heavy, very deep, very complex card um, manipulation game. So, that was number eight, Mistfall. Now, number seven, Lunarchitects from Iron Kitten Games, booth 737. Um, and that's only on Thursday from 2 to 6. They'll be at booth 737. The rest of the time, they'll be in the first exposure hall. Now, this is a game. It's obviously a very early uh, prototype. I think it's going to be going on Kickstarter later in the year, like November or so. So you'd be getting to see the game super early. And one of the things I love about seeing games super early, too, particularly when you play them with the designer, is you give it an opportunity to give them feedback and actually help steer the ship the direction and evolution of the game. So that's why I'm always looking for opportunities like that. And it seems like Luna Architects is definitely a good opportunity. The reason I'm really excited about, though, is I may I mentioned earlier in this never-ending podcast that just will not stop how much I love Glenn Moore from designer Matthias Kramer. This game is basically 
Uh, and Glenmore's been out of print for quite a while. It's kind of a hard game to get. This game is basically a, a sort of a semi-unofficial sequel. The designers were huge fans of Glenmore as well. And so they've taken the same basic gameplay of Glenmore, transported it from the Scottish Highlands to the moon. And instead of building um, you know, a, a Scottish Highland fiefdom, we're instead we're building, um, you know bases on the moon, but the, the core gameplay is still there. The way the market works, the way the player actions work, the way putting one tile down activates that tile and all tiles it's adjacent to, so all the long-term planning. But the interesting thing is, it goes from being um, square tiles to hexes. So there's a lot more opportunity for tiles when you place them to affect other tiles. And so, since I already love Glenmore, and this sounds like it's taking the ideas of Glenmore and, and you know pu- pushing them to the next level, I really love this one. Particularly because I've actually talked to designer a little bit, and he is... Um, passing all of his new ideas by Matthias Kramer. Matthias Kramer is not like a co-designer on this game or anything, but is giving feedback. So it has kind of the tacit approval of the original designer. So I really, really love that too, because I don't think we're ever going to see a sequel to Glenn Moore as much as I love it. But now maybe we are, um, depending on how well Loon Architects does. And so that's why I'm very excited about it, so much so that it made my number seven. Now, on to number six, which is Thunderbirds from... Um, Modifius Entertainment, booth 2530. Now, this is a co-op from Matt Leacock, the designer of Pandemic. The, you know, really the kind of architect of the modern co-op. Pretty much all, or um, not all, but a lot of co-ops borrow from Matt. And, you know, he's a hugely influential designer. And, um... This is a new co-op he's done that is tied in to the cult classic, the favorite, uh, amongst, particularly amongst uh, British viewers, TV show from the 60s, maybe it was the 50s, I think it was the 60s, Thunderbirds. Now, to be fair, I've already done a run-through for this, so I don't have to spend much time talking about it. Um, you can see the run-through I've done. It's actually a very, very good co-op. Uh, uh, it, it takes Matt takes the uh, formula that he really kind of pioneered and solidified in pandemic and he tweaks it and does a bunch of really cool new stuff with it and i very much enjoyed the run through and uh if i hadn't uh, yo this rate's so high because if i hadn't already played it i'd be super stoked because anything from matt leacock that's a co-op i'm immediately interested in and um this is another example this is a third example i think i've talked about now of a licensed tie-in that's not just a cheap money grab but actually has really respected talented designers working on it. So I love it for that reason, too. Plus, the components on this game look absolutely bonkers. So I think there's a lot of reasons that this would rank very, very high on games that I would have wanted to um, demo at the show. So that's why it made my number six. Now, moving on to number five. Legends of Andor from Cosmos, thirty booth 3039. Now, I talked about this way down back at number 26 and 25. I'm just in love with the fact that Cosmos is getting into English game publishing. Um, you know, I mean, with the, what was it, um, uh, Tumult Royal and Steam Time. But anyway, Legends of Andor, you may have known, um, is one of my absolute favorite games. It's probably, well, is it my favorite cooperative fantasy game? I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, de- it definitely beats out Assault of Doom Rocket, number two. Uh, 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 Legends of Andor is an amazing game. I've done run-through 
for it a long time ago. I've talked about it in my top 10 fantasy games. I've talked about it in my top 10 games of 2012, I think is when it came out. I have talked about it a lot. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. Long story short, it's a very strongly story-driven, hugely deep, very challenging cooperative fantasy adventure game where players travel all over the countryside, fight monsters, and try to save the world. And it's just brilliantly done. Absolutely love it. But I have been so sad for so long because the English printing of it was put out by Fantasy Flight. And for whatever reason, for, you know, what I, I can't imagine why, Fantasy Flight gave this game no love. While Cosmos has been putting out year after year, expansion after expansion after expansion, only available in German, we have just had to suffer on the sidelines because Fantasy Flight was not doing their job bringing all this stuff over to English. Much to the consternation of Andor fans the world over. And so, I was so happy the day that I discovered Cosmos is taking the game back and they are going to be printing it in English from now on. So, I would definitely head over to the Cosmos booth um, not, I was already over there anyway because of those other games, but I would love to see what's new in um, you know this English version. Um, you know, maybe get to play if hopefully the more recent the um, um, the the Northern Lands expansion, which hasn't been, only been available in German so far, if that's available in English at Gen Con, it's not quite sure. It hasn't been really made clear what's going to be available, but I would definitely go over and check it out and maybe see if I could play some of it because some of these expansions that have been available in Germany for a long time have looked awesome. And so, I but honestly, I would just be over there excited just to shake their hand and say thank you for finally giving us a chance to play more Andor. So. Um, and since this whole thing was about if I had never played Andor before, you better believe I'd be over there playing it because I, I don't know why it would have taken me so long to play this game because I've heard nothing but great things about it because it's absolutely awesome. All right. So anyway, that was number five. Number four, finally, a game I haven't actually played, Dice City. Now, this, I don't, I know hardly anything about it. It's from AEG, booth 801. They haven't released rules. They haven't said anything. We have, there's hardly any pictures of it. All I know is it is a city building game where you roll dice to build your city. That's all I know. And that in of itself would not be enough for me to rank this very high. I'd, it'd probably still be on my list just because I'd be interested. I'd be intrigued. I'd want to see a demo of it. The reason I'm super intrigued, though, is this is from the same designer as Among the Stars. This is his basically, um, you know, his next big game, and we love Among the Stars so much that I gotta find out. I gotta see what this is. And it's chances are it's probably a quick playing game. You could get a demo in and still have plenty of time to do other stuff. So it's those reasons that Dice City from AEG at booth 801 ranked so high in my number four slot. Now, number three is once again a game I've already played, but if I hadn't, oh my gosh, I would definitely play a demo of it at the show. It is Above and Below from Red Raven Games, booth 2927. I already talked earlier about how much I love Ryan Lockett when I was talking about how if I were at Gen Con, I would definitely, definitely, definitely buy Artifacts, Inc., and hey, you better bet, while I'm there buying that, I would definitely try to get a demo of um, Above and Below. You know what? I might try to get a demo of it, even though I've already played the game, because I enjoyed it so much. And um, the, the prototype I played had placeholder art. I cannot wait to see the final art for this game, because it's, again, Ryan's art is just so gorgeous. His gameplay is so good. And the storytelling in this game was just so lovely and delightful and well written. I just, um, you know, Jen, I cannot wait to get a full 
final version of this game. Just, you know, chomping at the bit. Absolutely lovely. Above and below. All right, number two. And actually, yay, number two and number one, I have not played either of them. So these would both definitely be this high. Number two is Roll for the Galaxy Ambition from Rio Grande Games in, in room 234. Now, there's no guarantee. It's It might be there. It might not. Rio Grande isn't sure they're actually going to get the prototypes that dare to actually play. But if it's there, I would definitely want to play it because I absolutely love that game. It was, I think, my... No, it was my number two or my number three top game of last year, of 2014. Absolutely love it. It is definitely one of Jen's favorite games. It is probably in her top three games of all time. She loves Roll for the Galaxy so much. And I have played it so many times now over the last few months. I cannot wait for new expansion content. So I would love to be able to get to see it and play it firsthand. Now, to a certain extent, I almost wouldn't bother to do it because whenever it comes out, I'm going to buy it anyway. But I am just so excited for this expansion. I cannot wait. And if there's a chance to play it and learn more about it, I would definitely be there with bells on. And that leaves me my number one Gloomhaven from Cephalofair Games. Now, Cephalofair is a little independent publisher. Last year, or actually, last year they ran a Kickstarter for a game that turned out to be one of my favorites, Forge War. Um, I still don't have my final um, retail copy. I'm going to be picking it up at Essen, my retail copy of Forge War. And I suspect once I get it, it'll make my top 10 of 2015. Just love Forge War to death. Gloomhaven is from the same designer. And so I'm already predisposed to love it because he did such a great job. He knocked it out of the park so much with Forge War. Forge War was so amazing. So same designer, instantly interested. But... Here's why I'm even more interested. This is a cooperative fantasy game, which is certainly a, um, you know, a, something that Jen and I enjoy quite a bit. We love cooperative games. We love fantasy games. But this is a persistent game where you go from mission to mission and the world changes. Your characters change and evolve. Everything changes and evolves over time. And so, I mean, like much like Risk Legacy, this is a game that keeps growing with you the longer you play it. And I love that. I love that to death. And um, so that kind of gameplay, persistence, is by far my number one, um, you know, the, the thing that gets me excited about potential for game evolution, board game evolution, more than anything else in the world. So the fact that a new one is coming in my favorite, uh, you know, one of my favorite fantasies from a designer who has already made an absolutely stellar game that I absolutely loved means Gloomhaven has to be my number one. And unfortunately, I can't tell you where it is because the um, it, um, Eric Martin's... Let me, let me look. Let's see if over the last four hours if it's been updated. But I don't think Eric Martin's list says where you can find Gloomhaven to play. But if I were at the show, wherever it is, I would seek it out and I would try to learn everything I could about that game. And I hope to learn a lot um, from other people who actually get to play it at the show. How does the um, advancement work? How long do, I mean, how many times do you play it before you run out of, you know, world-changing stuff? You know, what is the cooperative stuff like? Etc. Etc. I do know the game has really awesome. Oh no, actually, I'm sorry. 
It is available to demo, but um, you have to go and schedule. You have to go to the Gen Con webpage and um, to their event scheduling thing to schedule an event to play it um, uh, at the show. Or, apparently, you can contact the um, designer, Isaac Childress, directly on Twitter, at Cephalofair, at C-E-P-H-A-L-O-F-E. A-I-R, at Cephalofair, you can contact her directly to see if you can meet up with him. If I were at the show, there would be no game more important for me to see and learn about and experience than Gloomhaven. And that's it, folks. That's my number one. And that's the full list. Oh, my God. I have no idea how long this has gone on, but we have reached the end. For anybody who actually listened to all this stuff... Again, I salute you. Uh, my hat's off to you. I cannot believe you made it all the way through. I can only assume you were playing me at 2x speed in your podcast player. That's definitely how I would do it. Um, hopefully, if you enjoyed this, uh, hopefully maybe it, uh, you were listening to it on the plane ride out to Gen Con, and it helped you pass the time or your long drive you're from one state to another. But that's it, folks. Podcast number three, a very special episode all about Gen Con, has now come to a close. I'll be back next month, um, back to normal, just talking about games I've recently played, doing uh, questions and answers, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Maybe some new stuff, maybe not, but... I think I'm not going to talk at all now for the next three days because I have pushed myself past the breaking point. Jen, she just got up and left a long time ago. She shut the door. She just didn't want to hear it anymore. Thanks uh, for your patience, honey. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, Bye-bye.